Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Our Time on Earth. This immersive exhibition celebrates the power of creativity to shape the future of our planet. Now on view. Tickets and more at PEM.org. And the Museum of Science, where you can experience the heart of New England, their new giant screen film showcasing this iconic region. You can see it now on the IMAX Dome screen. Tickets at MOS.org. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, we'll start with your take on yesterday's, I would say, scary performance by President Trump at that coronavirus task force press event. Then, Congress couldn't ink a Green New Deal, but the NFL and its players did. In awareness of marijuana's newfound legality, the league agreed to not suspend players who test positive for marijuana. Welcome to the 21st century. In a couple of minutes, we'll discuss that with Trendy Kuznarek. You may not have liked it when the government bailed out the billionaires. How about when the billionaires bail out the government? Robert Kraft airlifted protective masks. Bill Gates is building factories to make vaccines that don't yet exist. And Twitter founder Jack Dorsey is pledging a billion to coronavirus relief. It makes for heartwarming news. But in a world where disaster relief has been outsourced to the private sector, is that really the best model? We'll ask journalist Anand Gudiragas. That's next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. I'm still recovering from yesterday's White House Coronavirus Task Force. I can't even say it anymore. You know, the U.S. has more coronavirus deaths than any other country. You know that. The number of confirmed cases now surpasses 580,000. As hard as it is to put a good spin on this reality, President Trump gave it his all at yesterday's White House press briefing picking fights with the press and his political foes along the way. We've done this right, and we, we really, we really have done this right. The problem is the press doesn't cover it the way it should be. Go ahead. You remember what happened? Because when I did act, I was criticized by Nancy Pelosi, by sleepy Joe Biden. I was criticized by everybody. In fact, I was called xenophobic. And I don't mind being criticized, but not when they're wrong. Not when people have done a great job. We're getting fake news, and I like to have it corrected. Uh, they're saying what a great job we're doing. And the media, these are the governors of California, Governor of New Jersey. But most importantly, we're going to get back onto the reason we're here, which is the success we're having, okay? So if Trump's own freestyle, I don't know, puffery wasn't enough against the backdrop of 23,000 deaths and 15 million unemployment claims, the president then played a campaign-style video deceptively highlighting his bold and decisive response to the pandemic. These White House briefings have always been a jumble of important information and self-congratulations, but I'd argue yesterday Trump took his self-absorption to a new level. We're going to take your calls asking you, did Trump not just draw a new line uh, demarcating outrageousness, but did it did he cross it? And does it worry you at 877-301-897? If you happen to miss this, we're going to play a little bit in a minute. In a minute, But I, I'm watching this thing, texting you. And it is I know. the ramblings of a scary, out-of-control, vindictive megalomaniac. It, it, was, it was really one of the most troubling, what was it, 90 minutes, two hours of presidential performance that I think I have ever seen. Can we just give it, let's just give a couple of samples here. Okay. Unfortunately, we cannot give you the whole feel 
of this brilliant uh, work by Paula Reed, who's a reporter for CBS, who would not let Trump get away with anything, particularly after this this campaign-style self-congratulatory video. Here's Trump, and then you'll just hear a little bit of Reed. I saved tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives by hooding time that you bought. The argument is that you bought yourself some time. You didn't use it to prepare hospitals. You didn't use it to ramp up testing. Right you're so, now, you're so, you're so disgraceful. It's so disgraceful the way you say that. Let, let me just... Listen, I just went over it. And her point was in part that the self-congratulatory video you had had nothing from February in it because you didn't do anything in February. What did you do in February? And when she asked him relentlessly, that went on for about a minute and a half, Mm -hmm. since he couldn't answer the question, he started insulting her. As you say, you're disgraceful. Your ratings are horrible. That's why I know. And that's how a a four-year-old, not a president of the United States, defeats, and I use that in quote, an argument that he or she can't deal with. It, it was pathetic. And well, by the, the way, thing, I never even heard of Paula Reed before. She's Good great. for her she's great. There's a lot of women that are very tough oh, yeah. in these things. Yamash Alcindor has gone after him again and again and again, keeps calling yeah, her sure. nasty and disgraceful. She's been Caitlin great. Uh, Collins, I think it's Caitlin Collins from CNN, mm-hmm. uh, she goes after him. She's terrific. She went after him yesterday. Well, I don't think after him is fair. She stands up to him, is well, not willing to be cowed. To, to, when, he, when he lies. Yeah. And he lies over and over and over again. You know, when my... The, 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 one of my favorite lies has been his latest lie that he inherited all these broken tests from the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason there were no broken tests from the Obama administration on the coronavirus, because there was no coronavirus then. <laughs> so it would have been impossible for anybody to have a coronavirus test before there was a virus. The president was the president when the coronavirus appeared on the this scene. This president. Yes. And the problem that was created with the test is, first of all, he didn't do any testing. He didn't He didn't get things geared up for testing or he lied about the ventilators, too. He repeatedly said the governor said everything they need. And the governor's just saying, well, actually, no, we don't. Um, but it's, he lied about so many things. It's incredible the way he looks at the sky and says it's green. And people just, I, I guess the people that support him, either they don't know that the sky isn't green or they don't care. Well, yeah, the question is, if, if you are somebody who thinks the president is generally doing a good job, I don't know how you could watch 90 Minutes yesterday and not worry that this particular person is in charge. You mentioned the, the, the flawed test kits. That wasn't true. Uh, he mentioned that Biden, as he has repeatedly apologized in a letter for referring to him as a xenophobe, he actually didn't do that. Right. That he said true. he had total authority under the Constitution to decide when to reopen. No, he doesn't have any of that authority. In fact, here is a little bit. Of that, that went on for a while. This is uh, questioning from CNN and Politico's Ryan Lizza, and obviously you'll hear Donald Trump in there too. Just to clarify your understanding of your authority vis-a-vis governors, uh, just to be very specific. For instance, if a governor issued a state-at-home When you say my authority, the president's authority. Not mine, because it's not me. This is when somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. Total. Your authority is total. It's total. It's total. Does that, does that not worry people, even those who think this is the finest president of our lifetime? He has total authority in an area 
Did you hear one? I didn't watch Fox News last night. I actually intended to to see if they'd find some legal expert. Mm -hmm. Did you hear one legal expert or read one legal expert in the paper who said he is correctly assessing the power he has in this situation? Everyone says he's wrong. Everyone says he's wrong. Exactly. Yes. And, 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 you know, he he, – but he just keeps saying it. It, it, You know, it's almost – thank God for all these governors. Thank God for our own governor, Charlie Baker, Cuomo in New York, Inslee out in Washington, Whitmer in Michigan, uh, Newsom out in California that are – that are – dealing with this, and if anybody's going to uh, help us, it's going to be them. It's not going to be him. Would well, you see like these regional La La compacts that were made yesterday, initiated by yeah. Cuomo, that yes. includes, uh, I think planning. it's the only Republican governor in the country, by the way, Charlie Baker, who's part of, there's a, a compact on the East Coast that includes Massachusetts. There's one on the West Coast. I believe every, the governor of every one of the, I think it's 11 states, and the two compacts about when and how to reopen collectively are Democrats. Good for Baker for joining us. Well, some of these, I, I think, like that woman in South Dakota, who's the governor of South Nome, Dakota? Nome, I think her name is. I don't know. I mean, it's like she's lost sight of reality. She's talking about, oh, we're not going to have, we're not going to have any of this social distancing. This is all ridiculous. We don't need to do this. Meanwhile, they've had this outbreak of dozens and dozens and dozens of people at this pork, at this uh, meat packing factory. She's got a hotspot right there in the middle of her own state. It's, it's sort of, I mean, people always talk about how the Democratic Party has moved far to the left. The Republican Party and those extreme ends of it, not all of them, there's a lot of very good Republicans, but that sect over there, it's like they've taken leave of planet Earth. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> I mean it's just, so anyway, I think in this time, um, of of I, I couldn't watch the whole thing last night. It upset me so much to see the president of the United States lying repeatedly over and over and over. Do again. you watch? The, were you watching when he played the campaign video? Yes, I was. With the most significant part beyond the fact that it was a fairly slick and deceptive campaign video. It's very deceptive. Do you did you happen to look? There was one of the cameras. I don't know what station I saw it on that only had the video screen on the right-hand part of the screen, and the center of the screen was on Trump standing on the side of the room. He was never watching the video. He was looking the whole time out into the audience to see how the reporters were reacting to this this slick video made, by the way, on taxpayer money because uh, uh, he said his staff made it in just a couple of hours, which who knows if that's true or not, uh, that essentially was a self-congratulatory Kiss. Yeah. I, so I have to say, for those who are going to call, who feel that Trump's doing a great job, who are going to be upset, I, I Marjorie, I think it's fair to say, has crossed the line a million times on Donald Trump. I try not Jim, to. Jim, I, try I, I thought he was unhinged. You the used the, you're the first person to use the word he was in America. Running for office. I followed him enough in New York City. I followed, watched that crazy show of his enough to know he is unhinged. And I think, unfortunately, we elected a guy that's unhinged. I get why we did because he was he was different. He was promising, you know, great health care. He was promising great middle class tax cuts. He was promising great infrastructure. He was running against the second most disliked candidate in history, Hillary Clinton. If you're still with him, I just got to say, hey, what? what okay. Well, so the point I was die. trying to make was, I uh, the, w- yesterday I think that two hours or however long it was was the most frightening performance yet by a Donald. It was a totally out of control. Uh, exercise you know, in megalomania. It was just like, unbelievable. It's kind of like your kid standing in the middle of the kitchen, and they're covered in peanut butter, and they're covered in peanut butter and jelly, and you say, what did you do? What did you do? And the, your kid says, yeah, I, I didn't do anything. I didn't, I didn't knock over the peanut butter. I didn't knock over the jelly. And they're covered in peanut butter and jelly. 
it's 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 as crazy as that to get up and say, uh, you know, we didn't have a test, or to talk about how he blocked travel from Europe. When you look at the fact checking on this, he only blocked travel from a certain section of Europe. He didn't block travel from Croatia, Cyprus, Bulgaria, Romania, Ukraine, Serbia, I mean, all these countries in Europe. Like he's left them out, like almost ten, including Russia. He just says these things that are just not true. And I guess, I don't know what they do on Fox because my blood pressure can't take watching them, but I guess they just go along with it. So my question in short is, I guess not in short, in long, is did yesterday worry you? Uh, This is the man who in great part will decide how catastrophic this pandemic is, not to mention all the other issues that we have to deal with in this country. John and Gardner, first on Boston Public Radio. Welcome to the show. Hey. Hey, thank you guys. Hey, first of all, it occurs to me I've been reverting to my ranting and monologuing ways from the past, so I mm-hmm. apologize for that. I've been getting a little over the top lately. Unlike the rest Jim, of us, that's me, true. You've got to give me dispensation with this guy in the White House and Fox News. You've know, you know, you got to give me a little dispensation to that. Um, and, Jim, we use some hyperbole all the time a bit. Laura Ingraham's head would have literally popped off at about 10.02 p.m. last night if Barack Obama had ever done anything like that video that Trump showed yesterday. I think that's but fair. My main point today is I think Mike Pence spilled the beans on something, and I can't believe I'm the only one. What's like, that? I can't be. Remember, he, he mentioned something. I don't even recall exactly how he said it, but now the 50 states and all the territories, which according to Trump, nobody talks about the territories, but all 50 states and all the territories are in an emergency situation, right? Right. I think he's going to use that as his claim of absolute authority because of this unique situation, as I understand it, that the 50 states have never all been in this category before at the same time. And I think that's what him and his lawyers are going to produce as his authority. Yeah, but John, John, they very well may do that. But I think the reality is, as Marjorie said a minute ago, there are enough strong governors in this country that they're just going to ignore ignore whatever he has to say. It doesn't mean it's not scary and troubling. It just means that they are strong enough. As as Cuomo said yesterday, I'm not doing it and I'll sue. I don't think they need to sue. I think they just have to keep governing. What exactly, our our buddy Juliet Kayyem was on CNN last night and I'm going to quote her. What exactly is he going to do? Have the National Guard come in and pull people out of their houses to say you have to open up? You have to go to work. (laughs) John, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. 877-301-8970. By the way, Christy Noem, N-O-E-M, is the name of the uh, governor of uh, South Dakota. I mean, I think it's fair to say she's a lunatic. I don't know about her being a lunatic. I think she was irresponsible. Basically, you're saying every man and woman make their own decisions is what her position has been so far. Well, about. it's kind of like it's kind of like the people on the anti-vaxxers that say, you know, um, I don't believe in vaccinations. Therefore, I'm not going to get my child the measles vaccine. And if my child, you know, uh, uh, causes people who are really ill to get the measles, so what? Mm. I mean, I guess I would maybe lunatic is not the right word for that, but it's just so irresponsible. Uh, and so crazy. It's like they're living. They talk about us in the bubble. I don't know what kind of bubble they're in, but it's a pretty damaging bubble. Let's go to Jimmy in Wakefield. Hi, Jimmy. Hello, Jimmy. Jimmy? Yes. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. Yeah, a couple of points. Uh, my feeling on watching the video was Trump is trying to get the press to stop asking ridiculous questions and make it ridiculous accusations when the record proves 
what they're doing is wrong. Like what, for example, Jimmy? You give us an example. Well, it's not, like it's the closing of the country, the closing of the travel, and the timeline involved with it, and the hypocrisy around the reporting of it. Well, Jimmy, That's how about can we go back to Paula Reed for a second? Paula Reed, I thought, asked the legitimate question. The self-congratulatory video had Donald Trump doing a lot of bold things. Uh, I think that was the word he used in March. It had nothing in February. So when the press says, what did you do in February after you knew what was going on here? That's an unfair question. I want to know. Don't you? Does the date February 3rd mean anything to either of you? Not at the moment, no. What's what February it? 3rd? It, it's the date the impeachment. Okay, so and? at the time, so, so say Trump would have came along and said, well, let's close the country down, and I think all the senators should go home and quarantine themselves. Uh, we can put this impeachment thing on hold. Mm-hmm. Or how about March March? Fifth, I believe it was. Does that no. mean anything to nope. one What's of the, March fifth? That's super. That's Super Tuesday. Mm-hmm. So say, say during February he had a lockdown and, and suggested that not a good idea to go to the polls. I think everyone should stay home. Let's let's not vote on Super Tuesday. Okay, Jimmy, it's hold, hold, your hold turn. On. I got hold one. On. No, I just want to say one thing, Jimmy. Um, the issue, the biggest issue, is that the president did nothing about testing. He did nothing about getting protective gear. He did nothing to get ventilators at a time when when all the public health experts and people in his own administration, his Azar, the head of Health and Human Services, were telling him this pandemic is coming and we need to get ready for it. He didn't do anything, and and because he didn't do anything, not only are people sick, but but everybody's out of work. That that's the issue, and it's well documented. Um, so, despite the impeachment and despite the Super Tuesday, he didn't even have to do anything, which he didn't do until the middle of March. By the way, is uh, recommend that people should be staying home, but he could have done something then, which made which which would have made this whole situation much less uh, disastrous than it has been. So, I, I don't think the press has been inaccurate at all in reporting that and if you can cite something tell me he he what he what you're saying he explained very well he's been doing everything he can he hasn't to to, to prepare the test to prepare okay jimmy the, jimmy jimmy it's my turn jimmy it's my turn since you know all the dates what happened on march 6 go ahead super tuesday no what happened on march 6 out of donald trump's mouth what did he say on march 6 that was more than a month ago I I assume you just went and Googled it, so tell me. No, actually, we've said it on the air a million times. Uh, Anybody who wants a test can get a test. He was at the CDC in Atlanta. It is now April 14th, I think. That's a month and a week later. Can anybody who wants a test get a test a month after he said that anybody could? If you have... have Jimmy, thank you for the call. We appreciate it. 877-301-8970. Maddie in Watertown, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, thank you. Hi. And Marjorie, I've been with you since July 15th. Beware oh, I'm sorry. Lives. I missed you for a second, Maddie. Say, uh, say it again. I've been with you since July 2015 when he got nominated. Mm-hmm. Beware false prophets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My brother lives in a group home in Lexington. There's eight residents, and one of the workers tested positive. So we think the oh. state will be sending over tests 
four of the women that work with him, they're beautiful. I love these girls. These, mm-hmm. The people that work at these group homes are from the countries that we really, we don't deserve. <laughs> um, they they cherish the people. My brother is, uh, he's non-communative, but he's doing good, you know. He's just turned 49, and he's had his issues with his lungs and stuff. So been in and out of, and he won't, if it happens, he won't, uh, we won't do that because he's tiny. He's about 80 pounds. Oh, man. Um, yeah, and so one of the women uh, was taken to the hospital. But anyway, thank you for having this conversation because I said to the gentleman who answered the phone, I could pretend that my friends voted for Trump and it was okay and I could go out and have dinner with them and birthday parties and we didn't talk politics, but when this is done, I won't be able to pretend that anymore. I will have to write people out of my life and I thought I could be a better Christian and look the other way, but I can't do that now. Maddie, good luck with your brother, and thank you very much for your phone call. We appreciate it. Okay, we're, we're doing our Thank God for the Governor's segment here, <laughs> Boston Public Radio, talking about the president, asking you if he's turning his daily briefling, briefings into full-blown propaganda, and are you concerned? The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Mark Regan. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about President Trump, uh, specifically about yesterday's, uh, I thought, totally out of control, vindictive press conference. And it worried me. And I wanted to know if it worried you. Some of our callers are troubled. Some apparently are not. 877-301-897. It was another moment we've ignored so far, which I, I think was, uh, let's say, an interesting one anyway. Uh Without being asked the question, Anthony Fauci sought to clarify statements he had made to Jake Tapper on Sunday to CNN about uh, had there been earlier social distancing mitigation, it would have saved lives. He suggested it was taken out of uh, context. And as you recall, what brought this to a head was about uh, 10 hours on Sunday after Fauci did this interview, uh, the president retweeted someone's tweet, which ended with hashtag Fire Fauci. Here is uh, what uh, doctor, the doctor had to say yesterday. That was taken as a way that maybe somehow something was at fault here. So let me tell you from my experience, and I can only speak from my own experience. The first and only time that Dr. Burks and I went in and formally made a recommendation to the president to actually have a, quote, shutdown in the sense of not really shutdown, but to really have strong mitigation. The president listened to the recommendation and went to the mitigation. Are you doing this voluntarily or did no, the president... No, I'm doing it. I, everything I do is voluntarily, please. Don't even imply that. Again, that was not in response to a question. He said he had something he wanted to say in one of his opening statements. He was called on early by the president to say something. But again, he said that he did it of his own uh, free will. Well, that was very disappointing. And the president, when it was asked the question about fire Vouch, uh, Fauci, I don't remember his exact words, but it didn't mean anything. He just retweeted it. It was somebody's opinion. Uh, but he chose to retweet that opinion, but apparently didn't mean anything. He likes Anthony Fauci, he said. By the way, um, there's a really long, and it's a long read, but it explains everything blow by blow from the New York Times on uh, Sunday that 
president likes to call it fake news. Obviously, this upset him very much because this is essentially his hometown paper that goes from uh, January right through March. And there's a very interesting thing at the end when it talks about um, the repeated efforts of his aides and the public health people to try to persuade the president to close the country to issue these social distancing um, guidelines. It said in the end, it was... Deborah, De- uh, Deborah L. Burks, the veteran AIDS researcher we see her every day in these press conferences, who joined the task force, who helped to persuade Mr. Trump. She's soft-spoken. She's fond of the kind of charts and graphs that Mr. Trump prefers. And she apparently did not have the rough edges that could irritate the president. He often told people, that's Trump, that he thought she was very elegant. So it was her, according to this piece, who persuaded the president. And he finally, on March 16th, announced the social distancing guidelines, saying they'd be in place for two weeks. But the, but leading up to this, it talks about the infighting and, and the different people. And you get that. I mean, he's the president. People are going to be mm-hmm. telling him from different directions what to do, what not to do. And the economic people were much more concerned. Concerned, obviously, but it goes through it blow by blow, and I would recommend it to people. Um, I know people are skeptical of the New York Times. They shouldn't be because it's been a great newspaper for a very long time, undercovering uh, lies from the government for many, many years, including Democrats' lies. Um, it's a great piece to read to see how this debacle came to pass. By the way, it was that was that story is what prompted the making of the yes. video. The video was the response to the story saying what a great job he's been doing. And even though it does leave out February, suggesting he was ahead uh, of the proverbial curve, which and I don't what, mean is And a what really pun. got under his skin, I'm sure, is that this, this documents how if we had gotten these tests earlier, if he'd spent the money to get the tests earlier, if he'd uh, spent the money to get the PPEs, that protective equipment earlier, and the ventilators earlier, it could have made a dramatic yeah. difference in where we are right now. And by the way, the Which is what exactly what uh, Fauci said to Jake Tapper on Sunday morning. The Trump guy that called yesterday that was upset about the president called it immoral for the mm-hmm. president to invoke the uh, Defense Production Act to force oh. companies. And we were talking about when that went into effect, and it was during the Korean War. Mm-hmm. But previously in World War II, we didn't call it the Defense Production Act, but in World War II, FDR said he invoked his War Power Acts to force, which was upset this call yesterday, to force companies in the United States of America to start building equipment for World War II. Now, this caller said that was immoral. I don't know. I mean, I think it was pretty important to defeat the Nazis, and I would say (laughs) the United States was was woefully unprepared for World War II. Gear up with those, uh, gear up the war machines so we could defeat the Nazis was a right and moral thing to do. Cabell, or I hope I pronounced it right, I'm sure I didn't, from Belmont, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, how thanks you, for taking my call. I mispronounce your name every time. How do I? How should I pronounce it? <laughs> Cabell. Cabell, you're Rabble, so nice. Rabble. You're very nice about it. <laughs> Take it away. Um, well, I, I just want to want to kind of speak to the importance of electing somebody with executive experience. Um, I was in LA back in 2000, in the early 2000s, and interviewed Donald Trump uh, at the Oscar red carpet party for with that Martin Scorsese has every year. Oh, and fun. he kept looking into, yeah, well, I mean, it, it was fun, but, you know, when I look back on it, it's one of those haunting memories that I have because when I interviewed him, he kept looking into everyone's camera saying, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, and I was asking him what his Oscar picks were for the year. <sighs> and he just kept looking into the camera saying, you're fired. And every, all, all the cameramen and all the, the interviewers we were all looking at each other, and we were astounded because we, we couldn't we couldn't figure out what was going on. 
And uh, basically what came to pass is one of the cameramen said to me, you know, this guy is thinking of running for president. This whole thing with The Apprentice is about him running for president, the lighting that they're going to put on him. Roger Ailes has this crazy idea that he should run the country, and reality TV is going to give him the platform to run. And I thought that the cameraman was out of his mind. And so when I look back on that moment and I watch him on television and how everything is is a reality TV moment for him and the box that's been let open of crazy people now coming out and running for office, the importance of executive experience is vital. And this in times like these completely uncovers that. And reality TV people have no business being in any form of office, in my opinion. Well, I think there you said it. Uh, thank you much for your call, and we'll remember how to pronounce your name the next time. 877-301-8970. Most people know when Cabo uh, was saying that, that this was what convinced them he was thinking about the presidency, the conventional wisdom, including on that brilliant frontline piece that we've talked about a million times, the choice, I think it was called, was the time, the night he decided to run, was the night when he was being humiliated at the White House press correspondence right. dinner by uh, Barack Obama. You can all blame Obama for this. <laughs> His fault. It was Tom. pretty funny at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, Ellen in the car, thank you. Hi, Ellen. Hi. Um, I was just, I was equally terrified as you both were at that press conference. Um, and it is disgusting that our state has to go across the world in a plane to get supplies to help our citizens. And then for him to say, I'm the one who is going to be in charge of all of this. He has done nothing, nothing. He has left it up to the state specifically because it was going to be something beyond he could comprehend. He couldn't handle it. He knew it. He's going to leave it to them to solve, and then he's going to come in and take the credit. And he, I hope, will be slaughtered in November. And I hope the Democrats band together and make that come true, because otherwise you are not going to see the United States of America. You're going to see a state by state. Well, Ellen, let me just add a little uh, uh, update on uh, articles, stories about this upcoming election now that Biden is the de facto nominee. While in almost all polling, Biden has a fairly comfortable national lead, as we've discussed a million times, that doesn't really matter. When you look at the Electoral College and the polls in the states that do matter, it is a virtual dead heat between Joe Biden and um, and uh, Donald Trump, which obviously means that Marjorie, I, you, and a lot of others today are in the minority, and that caller a little while ago is uh, at least... I wouldn't say in a majority, but in a significant chunk of the population. Ellen, thank you uh, very much for the uh, for the uh, call. And Tom, by the way, the governors, I just want to say before we get to Tom, the governors, when you watch that video yesterday, a lot of the governors, including the Cuomos and the Newsoms, who are pretty tough people, have have praised the president. And I think part of it is because at times he has given them what they wanted. That's his job. And at times they've said it because they're smart enough to know that if you don't praise this president, the, the, the likelihood is you're going to be punished. Yeah. As I've said as recently as yesterday, that wonderful question from a reporter's name I forget was when the President Trump at a press conference last week was saying how gracious certain governors were 
uh, for his help, in response to his help, and how others were not as gracious, a reporter asked, with not in an attacking way, why does it matter whether they're gracious or not? And needless to say, uh, Trump was flummoxed. Tom in Worcester, hi. Hello. Hey. I would just like to remind you of the words of Ben Franklin. What? A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. <laughs> so you folks are basically <laughs> preaching to the choir. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know that it's useful. May I respectfully request that you give us, instead of these disempowering statements, you can't do anything, we're in the minority, blah, 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 something like, what can we do? Tom, we've been on the radio 20 years. Tom, excuse me. Before you respectfully uh, suggest things for us, we've been doing a radio show for 20 years. Uh, Neither Marjorie or I never once in 20 years have said on any major uh, public policy issue, there is nothing you can do. Never. Not once. Not during coronavirus. Not during 9-11. Not during anything. So we're happy to take advice. But uh, the advice in that context is just not merited. What we are telling you is what our opinion is of the current state of affairs. Obviously, people can do a lot today and they can do a lot in November, but we're just describing what we see as the current reality, but continue. Thank you. My point is that where are the tools that you might provide us to do anything about this? Information. That's all. We're we're not here. We're not organizers. We're not working for a party or a candidate. No, we happen to believe that information uh, provided to people is an empowering kind of thing, and that's what we try to do occasionally with a little humor three hours a day. That's how we see our mission, and we like to think that more often than not we do it moderately well. Tom, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. Well, I do think we can all pay more attention. You know, we we don't pay enough attention to what goes on around us, I don't think. Do we? No, and you can watch the president's two-hour press conference and damage your health (laughs) as you're watching. I would say, let me just tell you something. I couldn't take it anymore. I I was getting so upset. I said, I'm going to like fall apart in the middle of my kitchen. Well, I would say when watching the video yesterday, I don't remember how long it was, the the campaign video. My jaw was on the floor. I would say my life was shortened about six months, give or take a couple of weeks. I think I texted you. I don't you know. did. I want to know what don't I said. Don't say, no, don't. I, okay. you, I don't say what but you But I mean, me. you're looking at this and you say, I can't believe it. This is the United States of America. Yeah, it was hard to believe. It was hard to believe. I mean, my patriotism was like, you know, was, I was like almost in tears. Anyway. But by the way, an answer on. to Tom's thing, what you can do on everything that matters to you is you can uh, uh, learn the facts, disseminate the facts, and you can vote doesn't matter what your position is on an issue. That's sort of the common and I would And I would say everybody should stop watching Fox News. I mean, they're, they're, ruined. they're a danger to the United States of America. They're lying, and I think they should – I mean, uh, people should not watch them. Tom Brady uh, plus Tampa. That's coming up. The foreign patriot is rebranding himself with a Florida twist. Trini Kusneri joins us for that. Another sports headlines. And tell, she's going to tell us what the, all these – Players are going to be doing with no, nothing to play at. She joins for that and more next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And the NFL is changing its cannabis rules, apparently giving new meaning to the word Super Bowl. <laughs> Players will no longer be suspended if they test positive for marijuana, but they are being tested, which I don't quite get. Trenny Kuznarek joins us in line to talk about this, about how the sports leagues are all planning for their eventual uh, return and a whole variety of other things. Trenny Kuznarek is an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston. Hey there, Trenny. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. Great to talk to you, Trenny. How are you holding up? All right? Yeah, not bad. Good. I mean, you know, get out for a walk a couple times a day, you know, run. I sometimes go do some trails to get out of my house. Good. I don't know. It's weird. I don't know about you guys that are, like, starting to get used to it, which scares yeah. me a little bit. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Like, oh, I don't have to see anyone or speak to anyone. I can just sit in my house. This is terrible. So, so uh, Jim, I wanted to tell you, I finally watched Princess Bride after you mentioned it. You've Andre never Bride. seen it? Isn't it great? I've never seen it before. It's such a great movie. And when you mentioned it the other day, I was like, I have to watch this. The Saturday I watched it, it is what a wonderful quarantine movie. Marriage is, is what, what brings us, us together. together. <laughs> Pretty great mo. The whole thing is just is fabulous in any case. Okay. So let's get back to some sports stuff, uh, Trinica's Narek. Um, what's happening in terms of the uh, different leagues, NBA, NFL, baseball? I, I, are we going to see anything or not? Well, we'll give you a breaking news update first. This just dropped this morning. Uh, the state of Florida... Um, has determined that sports and media, sports media are an essential business. So the WWE is going to continue oh, be able to continue operations. I saw that. Ron DeSantis, the governor? Yes. Oh. Um, and apparently there is, and I'm going to pull up a tweet here, but there is a sort of convoluted tie to President Trump and a lot of money and the Fox network that sort of connects the dots as to why they're doing this. Now, they're not going to be having anything in front of fans. They're not going to be packing arenas. I don't even know if you guys knew this, but they did a WrestleMania like a week and a half yeah, ago that. in an empty facility in Florida with Rob Gronkowski, right. sort of like the MC host. Um, but here's the thing. Linda McMahon, This is I'm reading this from a tweet from Brian, Brian Durrell. Linda McMahon made her fortune as a WWE executive. DeSantis just saved WWE from breaching their Fox TV contract and losing $205 million per year. McMahon currently runs Trump's Super PAC. So connect the dots. By the way, she was the head of the SBA for him for at least a, a year or yeah. so in the early part of so, but you know, it, always the best people, always the best. But people. just one second though, are they going to quarantine? I mean, on its face, it sounds insane, but a lot of things that governor has done lately have been irresponsible. But are they going to yeah. quarantine the wrestlers? I don't know if that's the proper word, wrestler performers, in advance because you know, if they quarantine them and there are no fans. It's not quite as irresponsible as it appears on its face. Do you, you know? Uh, no, it really it, it isn't. It, I'm, I'm reading, I read the article in USA Today, and it's a little short on details, to be quite honest. Um, it, it basically just says that, that they feel that during this time, athletes, entertainers, um, and whatnot, you know, are, are necessary to a diversion from this difficult time. It does not say... It does not say whether or not they will be quarantined and how they will try to minimize and mitigate the spread within the actual athletes. Mm. Um, I, the other weird tie to this, guys, is that Vince, Vince McMahon, who is the CEO 
CEO of the WWE, had to file for bankruptcy in his other league, the XFL, which they relaunched and was supposed to be. It actually was doing not great, but it was doing okay as an alternative to NFL football uh, in the offseason. But because, it, you know, it, three, four weeks into its inception, we had this shutdown. So he now lost money from that. It all just seems a little tied to uh, money and politics and people that, you know, I, I, I think – in that party and in that uh, ideology needs some financial help right now. So I don't mean to insult any WWE fans because I know that it's totally huge, but in the, what generally are considered the four major sports, everybody, all the commissioners seem to be talking about some creative re-entry strategy, whether it's realigning the leagues like they're contemplating doing in baseball. So you only play teams that are, even if they're not in your league traditionally or close to you in terms of where you practice or whatever that verb is in Florida or Arizona or that sort of thing. But but are these serious proposals or are these purely to convince fans to stay tuned because we haven't really gone away? You know know what I mean? I think they're serious proposals. I mean, I listen, at the end of the day, there is money at stake and there are livelihoods at stake. And these are investments that, you know, even if they're not going to make the gate money and the concession money, I, have to imagine that professional sports owners want to get a product on the field, on the court, you know, whatever, in the ring, um, because at the very least, you're honoring your television contracts. Um, and so that way, networks can't go back and say, well, yeah. we were supposed to get X amount. We're not going to pay you. We want this money paid back to us. Um, and I do really believe that, that a lot of these owners do sort of also see this as, hey, people are clamoring for something to watch. I mean, a bunch of people watched on ESPN and I a horse, a poorly produced I watched a few minutes. Yeah, I um, never even knew what that was. Yeah, it's like a, it's a playground game. Um, so I really do, Jim, think that like Major League Baseball is, and that what you were what you were referring to is what they're looking at doing just for the 2020 season is instead of having the American League and the National League, teams will play rather than everybody going to Arizona, everyone having to be separate from their families for four months. You would play in your spring training stadium uh-huh. in Florida, which would which would significantly limit travel. Everything could be done by bus as opposed to um, flights. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably could also, for the most part, avoid hotel stays. Um, so you could, you know, only That's maybe go to and from your own home yeah. um, with people you've already been around. And so you would compete against teams that are in the Grapefruit League, which is Florida, the Cactus League, which is Arizona, and then they would have a neutral site World Series. Now, again, details still pending. The NBA has floated out over the last couple of days a um, 25 to 30 day plan in which there is a short training camp for guys to get ready, get back in shape, do some things, uh, and then go back and play in Vegas in a contained environment and, uh, do, and, and have the postseason played out that way. The NFL is still holding out hope that by the time we get to September, it's going to be fine and they're going to be able to pack stadiums and uh, play football games. I don't know about the pack stadium part. I would think with as big as the NFL television contract is, that they will probably try to find a way. And hopefully by September, we have the testing in place where, you know, these leagues can, because they always keep coming back to you. And I certainly, you know, never want to say that anything that President Trump says has any merit or makes sense. But there is some merit to the 
we cannot let the economy completely, we can't stay in our houses for 18 months until there's a vaccine. We cannot have a complete collapse, collapse of the global economy. And it should be pointed out that other countries are finding ways to return to some semblance of normalcy. So it can be done. We yeah, but can I, sure can I the right way. interrupt you? I've read virtually everything I could find in the last 48 hours about this, this sort of rolling reentry kind of thing. And the last item on almost every rolling reentry analyst list are people going to huge concerts and going to huge stadiums and sitting side oh, by yeah, side with 30 or 40 or 50,000 people. I don't think that that's going to happen, but I do think that there is a way to um, have sports. And it, listen, is it going to be great? Are sports without fans good? No, it's going to take something away. I mean, there is something about watching a sporting yeah, event. Right. And when, a, you know, a big bucket is scored or a touchdown or a home run, whatever it is, a defensive play, the stadium erupting and the stadium, you know, getting behind a pitcher who's at an 0-2 count, you know, bottom of the ninth inning, Red Sox-Yankees, and the Red Sox can clinch it with a strikeout, the entire place on their feet, standing and clapping, that aids, you know, the, the person who's on the mound and the guys who are on the field. But we're going to have to make some concessions until we get a handle on this and there is a vaccine or there is herd immunity or whatever it is, whatever our gateway to life somewhat resembling normalcy again, we're going to have to make concessions. And I think fans at sporting events will be a concession. So Trina Kuznarek, um, kind of a neat story about these different sports companies shifting to making medical supplies, including uh, New Balance doing cloth face masks for doctors and nurses and hospital staff. What's going yeah, it's on? Been really, I just think it's been really great, right? Like we, I think we sort of tend to always focus. I, I do like that a lot of news channels now are having sort of like a good news segment yeah. of the day, trying to show something that's positive that's coming out of all of this. And one of the ways I think that the sports world has done a really great job um, you know, whether it's the Patriots lending their plane to the state of Massachusetts and flying to China to bring masks, New Balance, um, donating $200 million to um, charities uh, during this time, but then also reopening their factory floors and making, creating masks. Bauer, which is a big hockey um, uh, it's a it's a hockey brand that that does like a lot of the helmets and the face masks and stuff. They are getting face shift and making face shields um, for um, for first responders and for our our you know our healthcare workers. So a lot of major um, sports corporations have stepped up and said, you know what, can we are we selling as many sneakers right now? Are you know our athletes on the field wearing our brand? No, but we can take what we have, the materials that we have. And we can do something great for other people. Like I saw a story the other morning on CBS, and this isn't a sports story, but it's a, a sail-making company. Um, they make sails for sailboats um, up in Maine. And they have been taking the fabric that they would have made for people's summer boats, and instead they've been making masks out of them to sell and distribute to people so that they can have them. So, I, you know, I think to me it's one of the real positives that has come out of all of this. Yeah, they talk about Mercedes and uh, Formula One team making ventilators, which is pretty cool. Right. Yeah, I mean, think about how long we've been waiting for, you know, part of that is this slow roll out of the Defense Protection Act. But, um, you know, we've been waiting for, like, CM and Ford to um, contribute to those things, right? Um, Where I, I I think athletic companies have, you know, 
taken their innovation and not waited for someone to tell them it's okay to do it. Yeah. They've just done it on their own without, without getting something in return from the federal government. They've just done it on their own. Well, you know, we, we carried uh, Charlie Baker's press conference live yesterday, which we do anytime it happens during our show. And he introduced this woman whose name, of course, I've forgotten, who's the CEO of a company in Lawrence, 99 something or other. And they did the exact same thing voluntarily. And they're now going to produce 1 million isolation gowns, which is really, I am with you, Trenny, those kinds of stories where people step up on their own without being forced or their, you know, arm twisted behind their back are actually inspiring or ones for financial in incentive. a really tough time. Yeah. So, uh, can you know, and a lot of these places are 99 degrees, 99 degrees. That's right. That's you know? what it's called. Thanks. I'm sorry. What'd you say? Uh, well, and they're doing them without a financial incentive. It's not like by making these masks and gowns, they're donating them. They're not asking, you know, they're not asking these hospitals or governments to pay them for it. They're just doing it to, to play their part. Um, whereas there have been other corporations and very wealthy people who have wanted something in return in order to give. And that, to me, is the best part about this is that there are some people who have realized that we are in a time when, even unfortunately, when you're laying people off or furloughing or forcing, you know, employees to take salary cuts, they're still doing something for the greater good, even though they don't get anything in return. Well, uh, we can have that. We're gonna have that discussion with our next guest, so you should stay tuned. But I want to bring up one <laughs> other thing that I that I, I don't understand at all. The NFL is being, I wouldn't say celebrated, but being commended for finally coming into the. Let's give them credit a little more than they deserve coming into the almost the 21st century in that they're not going to suspend players for using a substance that is legal in a huge number of states now, marijuana, but they're still going to test them for it. I don't get the disconnect. If you're I, not going to suspend, why can't you just use it when you want to use it? If it impairs your play, like anything else that impairs your play, you'll obviously lose your job or not play on the field. I don't get it at all. I, I don't, I don't understand it either. I don't understand why either test or don't test. Either say it's fine, do what you want. I mean, they don't, let's be honest, they don't test for alcohol. They're not breathalyzing these guys yeah. every time they come in. And if we're being honest, um, I don't really know how, other than pain management, I mean, I think it's a smart move. I don't think, considering what we know about marijuana's benefits for people in extreme pain, and the alternatives to what a football player could use instead of using marijuana. I mean, the, the, the drugs that these guys pump, these painkillers that, that teams pump into them. I would much rather, if it was my son, husband, brother, whatever, playing football, I would much rather him smoke marijuana to help ease that pain as opposed to taking another huge Toradol pill. Yeah, those um, are very dangerous, that Toradol. I was reading about that in this story, and that's oh. that's routinely used to treat NFL players. Yeah. Oh, I mean, they pump these guys. I mean, and you, opioids. And it just, I, yes, opioids. They, that's the one thing that it, it amazes me, that even when players speak up, Kyle Turley, formerly of the New Orleans Saints, has talked about this more openly than any other player. But the side effects and what he has gone through, we talk about the head trauma, but the what his body has gone through post-career because of the opioids and the painkillers they were, they gave to him and what that's done to his, his internal organs and his liver and his mental state, um, similar to what, you know, a, 
having multiple concussions has done. And we, we know the ramifications of taking too much of those types of narcotics. Generally, they're, they're narcotic drugs. Um, so to me, it, it's it, it's a smart move by the NFL. And, but I don't I read that article and I, I did. I was like, why are we? I don't understand then what the testing is for. The only thing I can think of, Jim, is that they want to monitor and make sure that the amount in your system mm-hmm. isn't too much, that they're still, that they would still maybe flag you for maybe like a substance abuse program where if they think that you're using it to the point where you're not just using it as for medicinal um, and pain relief, but if you're using it more, you know, same way, again, they don't breathalyze guys when they come in, um, but maybe it would be easier to identify that like you could smell the alcohol on someone's breath and maybe you could see the patterns of alcoholism and then getting someone into a substance abuse program. That's all I can think of. So the bad news is obviously despite what she was hoping, Marjorie, with testing continuing, she will not be playing in the NFL <laughs> uh-huh. anytime soon. It's very uh-huh. sad. Trenny, good to talk to you. Thank you, Trenny. Great okay, to talk to you. Too. BPR contributor Trini Kuznarek joins us every week. She's an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston. Coming up, a pandemic paradox. Are the inequalities that the coronavirus is exposing? What are they making of the billionaires who are bailing us out? That conversation is next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio. These days, you're more likely to get help from Bill Gates than from Donald Trump. As the president flounders in his response to the pandemic, billionaires are starting to fill the void. There was Bob Kraft's million mask airlift, Gates promised to build factories to produce future vaccines, and social media giants Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg pledged to spend big on disaster relief. But is there a danger to outsourcing public service to the private sector? In a couple of minutes, we'll hear from journalist Anand Gadiradas, who's been following the issue. It's a tale of two schools for Massachusetts students, for more affluent kids who have homes with high-speed internet access, computers, and parents who can stay home and tutor them. Social distancing has been an adventure in online learning. But for students without access to computers, consistent internet access and food distance learning is just not working. What are schools and kids to do? We'll ask former Education Secretary Paul Rebel next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Hello again, Marjorie. So we don't like it when our government bails out billionaires. So should we be equally skeptical when the billionaires bail out our government? With the coronavirus outbreak blindsiding the economy and exposing the ineptitude of the Trump administration, people like Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, and others are coming to the rescue, spending a piece of their fortunes on N95 masks, vaccine research, and other emergency relief. Nonetheless, is it troubling that they're helping to fix the very deficiencies that I think you could argue they helped to create? Joining us online to talk about this and more is writer and columnist Anand Girdadas. He's a Time editor-at-large. His latest book is Winners Take All, the Elite Charade of Changing the World. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Anand, good to talk to you. Thank you. It's good to be back with you. Yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us. So let's start with the question, as Jim put it, we, we don't like it. 
uh, when our government bails out all these uh, Wall Street billionaires and billionaires from any place. But should we be skeptical when they're bailing out us? Well, first of all, they have the ability to bail us out because we've been bailing them out all these years, <laughs> not just through explicit bailouts, but you could argue that our society over the last 40 years has functioned uh, as a giant bailout machine for them. Uh, so when people have that much money lying around to do all this nice stuff that is admittedly nice stuff that you mentioned, it raises the question of why they added in the first place while so many people uh, don't have enough to, to survive you know, two weeks without income. Um, I think what, what I look around and see right now is exactly as you say, all these folks uh, stepping up and, and doing these gestures. And while I am someone who's criticized philanthropy, I do recognize that this is such an emergency, an hour-to-hour emergency, that you know, someone like me, to be very clear, is not saying those masks should not be bought or distributed today if someone's about to do that today, right? right? But I'm trying to have a bigger conversation about why is it that we are in a situation in which that has, that's where we are. And I think there's a few things that we have ignored. The, the same class of billionaires who are stepping up to do all this stuff have done many different things to get us into a position where we were so vulnerable in the first place. And I'll just name a few. Number one, as a class, they have pushed for a tax regime that heavily undertaxes them and, and overtaxes as a consequence average people and working people. Um, there's, there was data last year that the top 400 Americans pay a lower effective tax rate than, than much of the country. Um, and that has created a situation in which the government over years and years, not just in the Trump era, um, has simply not been able to invest in the kinds of social programs that would give people more stability when something like this happens, number one. Number two, that billionaire class has lobbied for public policies, bottled service public policies that are good for their private interests, not good for anybody else. And over years, that's why we don't have universal health care, which most people favor. That's why we don't have uh, you know, an inheritance tax. So there's a bunch of different things that would benefit the vast majority of people, again, would give us a greater safety net when something like this happens that we don't have because that billionaire class is a great obstacle. Finally, and this is very specific to this crisis, you might ask, why is it that we, you know, toilet paper things going on or these masks are hard to come by or the ventilators are hard to come by? Huh, that's interesting. Why is that? And one of the reasons that is, is that that same billionaire class, the corporation owning and managing class, has chosen in recent years, every time there was an opportunity to save a nickel by moving production overseas, <laughs> by doing just-in-time manufacturing that would, that would keep, uh, you know, keep production costs minimal by not having inventory lying around, they took it, and it was too cute by half. Everything got made somewhere else, and we're now rediscovering that we are profoundly insecure as a country when we literally can't generate mass in time ourselves and are at the mercy of other countries who happen to be dealing with the same issue. Oh, so, my God, sure, you're singing my tune here. People stepping up, but the very people stepping up have been stepping in it for the last 40 years. By the way, I love the that expression bottle service public policy. Perfect. is pretty good. You know, it, can I propose a reform here, Anand, and you're the guy who could get this somewhere, that every time one of these guys 
uh, mostly guys, every time one of these guys makes a major uh, contribution, either in-kind or financial contribution, at the same time, they have to disclose what they would have paid in taxes had they paid at the same rate as Warren Buffett's secretary. What do you think of that? That's a great idea. And, you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but but actually someone did a version of what you're proposing. And serious analysis, they took, I think, you know, 10 or 20 of the richest people, and they looked at what they had given away in the previous calendar year. This is why we were still very much in the thick of the early part of the primary, and we were talking about Bernie's wealth tax, Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, uh, which, you know, has slightly different rates, but both of which were novelties in a way. And... One of the things that this analysis found is I think one or two of the people on that top list had actually given away more in the past year than they would have paid under the wealth tax. But everybody else, it was a joke. They had given away 0.0003% of something, you know, and they would have paid 2 or 3% under Elizabeth, you know, up to 6 or 8% under Bernie a year. Um, and you have the Wall Street Journal uh, in, in recent days. Um, you know, Wall Street Journal is in a tough place right now because this is not a good time to be a purveyor of the notion that people don't need a safety net. So the Wall Street Journal is in a tough spot. And and it said, you know, in recent days, see, Bill Gates is giving money away. And, and I would agree. He's giving it away probably better than smarter and more than most people out there of his ilk. But he's giving it away. Therefore, it's good that we let him have $100 billion. A wealth tax would have taken him down to 10 and he wouldn't be able to do such big things. And what, of course, the Wall Street Journal is forgetting is that if he had $10 billion instead of 100 that would be because we had been collecting all this money from all these people over the last 30, 40 years, and it would mean that we would have a completely different society that would not need him to step up. You know, can I take a slightly different – I agree with every word you said there, but I want to take a slightly different angle, uh, Anand, is, is – we have talked to a lot of people who do what you do for a living, think, uh, write about their thoughts and about how we come out of this. And we've talked a lot about it. I mentioned that I'll never forget the speech in 1996 when uh, President Clinton said in the State of the Union, the era of big government is over. And we've debated whether or not people are going to appreciate that the era of some kind of big government should come back. Because without that, how would we have gotten through this coronavirus crisis? My concern about the giving is not that I don't want it to happen. I want to be totally clear because obviously we need it, whether it's Kraft or, or Gates or whomever, Dorsey, whomever it is. But that it covers up for the, the ineptitude and, and uh, lack of fullness of the government response to this. And so, again, I, I'm not suggesting they shouldn't do it so that people suffer so they realize that we need more out of government. But it, it does mask to a great degree uh, uh, the inadequacies of the government response here, don't you think? Absolutely. And let me let me, um, you know, since a lot of people at home, this this analogy may may really resonate with them. Um, let me explain this as I see it, in, in terms of a, uh, a bathrobe, in this case, a velvet bathrobe. So imagine you are a very wealthy person at home in your wealthy bathrobe, your velvet bathrobe. It's red. And what you have as a wealthy person is the need, the, the impulse, the understandable human impulse to pr- protect and defend your wealth. But if you were to just say, I like my wealth and I want to hold on to it, no one's going to listen to you. They're just going to be like, that's the guy in a velvet robe trying to keep his wealth. Like, who cares? Right? Let's just tax that guy. 
So the way you not the way you avoid having that money taken is you need to launder your interest into more selfless bounding things. And so what you do is sitting at home in your robe, you start talking about these other issues. But you need to like Africa. All these rich guys love to talk about Africa, whether they've been there or not, whether people in Africa <laughs> want them there or not, they love to talk about Africa. Right? People in Africa are so tired of these American guys. So so what happens when you start talking about Africa? You start saying, oh, you know, we got, got to do something for women and girls in Africa. Maybe you've written a half a million dollar check, even though you're worth billions of dollars, right? But what that does, and this is very important, it buys you into the selfless conversation. Suddenly, you're not just a rich guy in a robe trying to do wealth defense. Suddenly, you've transformed who you are. You are now a person who thinks about public questions. You are now a person whose heart bleeds for the least of these. You're now a person who has credentialed yourself as someone who worries about the world. And what you're then able to do with the platform and new image that that gives you is every now and then when a wealth tax come, idea comes along, you can shoot it down with a credibility that you wouldn't have if you weren't also the Save the Africa guy. And so what we're seeing now is, yes, earnest gestures that are helping. And I am sympathetic to the fact that if you need a mask right now, you don't care where it's coming from. I get it. But there is this question of how this will be leveraged, the way the Wall Street Journal is already running editorials, leveraging the giving Bill Gates is doing right now to say, don't tax anybody's wealth. One guy is doing something in a crisis. That one guy is the, the, the grist for an editorial thing. Do not tax the wealth of thousands and thousands of people, most of whom are not doing anything like that. You know, you you were saying my tune because this is something that uh, uh, you know uh, I'm, I'm obsessed with. But you know what I find amazing too that we hear uh, people talking about the great economy that we've had and very low unemployment, and, and that's all true. The stock market has been hot; it's been very high. Unemployment has been very low. But how can you say it's a great economy when we have? So many millions of Americans living in poverty when people can't afford four, don't have 400 bucks for an expense when half of the country, and currently if I'm wrong, but I think it's half the country, half the country is living paycheck to paycheck. And when everything's falling apart, the roads, our bridges, our schools, our airports, you know, the climate. So it, it's odd that we keep getting away with this notion. I mean, you say to yourself, if we can't fix a bridge in the greatest economy the world has ever known, is it really a great economy? Yeah, and let me, let me say it this way, because you know, one of the things I think about a lot as a writer is language and persuasion. And what, what do you, how do you talk about an issue in a way that wins someone over? So, so if someone is listening to this who generally is not sympathetic to the kinds of arguments I'm making, right? They, and they hear me using the usual, or what you just said, right, inequality, injustice, whatever, they may just tune out, right? Let me try to reframe what you described and the, and the fact that I've been reporting on in a slightly different way that may appeal to that person. But make sure you do it with a velvet robe imagery in it, <laughs> on it. Can you do that, yeah, please, like for me? That. I, I, I didn't think of it from nothing. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think we are not as a society who we think we are. Right? Yeah. That we are a hypocritical society. We are, we, are, we are a self-deluded society. And I think... When this happens to an individual, it's a wake-up call. When you realize you're not who you think you are, it's a problem. We as a country, who do we think we are? We think. I bet the average person listening to this would assume that the American dream is truest 
in America of all the other countries, right? You, you, your destiny is not tied to where you're born, who your parents were, what your station of birth was. You invent your place in life, right? People out there think that. Do you know that among the rich countries, we are actually in last place on that indicator? No, I do not. We are not. actually the least socially mobile. So, so the American dream, the, the interesting thing about the American dream is it's truer in every rich country than in America. Okay, wow. We're the least American dreamy of all the rich countries. So that's, that's not about inequality alone. That's about we are not who we think we are, right? We are not who we say we are. We are not who we lecture other countries to try to be. In this country, your parents' income predicts your income as an adult more effectively than in any other rich country. Think about that. Secondly, this notion of insecurity that you described, people not having 400 bucks for an emergency, uh, and certainly therefore not 4,000 or whatever it's gonna take for people to weather this emergency of this duration. Um, those kinds of things, again, aren't just about a gap. They are inequality, a, a divide. To me, again, trying to speak to someone who's skeptical on, on these notions, this is about a, a hoarding of the future itself. Every year, a certain amount of future and future promise reigns on this country. New innovations, new income, new wealth, new companies, new, new bounties of every kind. And we are rich enough as a country that the amount of future that reigns on us is actually enough for all of us. Right? That's not true for every country. There are some countries that don't have, don't have enough to go around, but we have plenty to go around. What happens in our country is when the future rains on us, very few people harvest most of the rainwater, leave many, many, many more people in drought. Yeah. And that has been true. That has been true. The pandemic did not make this true. But the pandemic is functioning uh, as, an, as a kind of uh, revelation of what America is. Um, and I really hope it is a moment in which more of us who think we knew everything that was to be said about these issues will open ourselves to rethinking, uh, because we have been revealed through this crisis as a profoundly weak society, uh, not as vital and healthy as we thought we were. So based on that, the two candidates, Anand, who spoke most about the issues that you're talking about are no longer candidates, uh, Bernie Sanders and our own Elizabeth Warren. Uh, I guess two things. One, where do you think they failed in their messaging? And two, if coronavirus had happened six months earlier, earlier in the primary phase, do you think one of them would be the nominee instead of uh, Joe Biden? I mean, to do the second thing first, I, I think that that's a serious possibility, but I'm, I'm not a I'm not a predictor. I, I, I hate journalistic prediction and backwards pre pre prediction is even worse, probably. But I think there's some truth in the notion that um, what the what the pandemic has done is reveal to reveal to a place of undeniability certain things that both Bernie and Elizabeth were trying to say, right? For example, the notion that jobs shouldn't be tied to healthcare, critical part of each of their platforms. Um, I think the you don't need to make that argument in in this moment in the way that you did two months ago to a lot of people, right? So that's, I, I think it's, it's, it's certainly possible to say that that would have been a different world. Um, you know, I think you can also cut the other way in that crisis makes people scared and maybe not want to try, you know, big structural change when they just want to feel like managed. So I don't know how that would have 
shaken out. Um, on the on the more fundamental question, I think, you know, first of all, you have to recognize that for both Senators Warren and Sanders, given the power structure they were taking on, you have to understand them as being, you know, very much not favorites. Yeah. Um, they were up against, you know, anybody with any clout in this country did not want them to win pretty much. So, so that's a pretty big obstacle. Um, and when you're living in a, in a kind of moment of plutocracy, that's a, that's an even more formidable obstacle. So I think they did, they did relatively well given that, but I will say, um, and I've, I've, I've written about this. I've, I've, I've had these conversations publicly. I think if, their cause to lump them together, even though they're different and there are important differences between them. But if their cause is to have purchase, it is going to need to be expansionary in a way that, frankly, it wasn't, right? And it's going to need to be in a it, – and, it, and it's very complicated because it's, it, it's a working-class movement rooted in rage, and that is justified for all the reasons you just laid out. However – a movement rooted in rage alone may not rise above that 30% threshold. And so I think the, the really challenging thing is how do you have that movement that is righteously fueled by, by rage and by resentment and by a sense of being shut out, but also have in it the exuberance that pulls other people in, also have in it the sense of outreach to those who are not fully down with the program but might be tempted in. When I look at someone like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, AOC, I think she is pointing to a way of, of evangelizing those ideas in a way that gives them a sunniness and a, uh, a kind of on-ramp of possibility and outreach that is, that is a next-generation approach to this movement. Um, and I think we should pay attention to her and others who are, who are, who are showing what it might look like for a movement like this to be a 50, 60, 70% movement, not a 30% movement. We're talking to Anand Girdas. You know, so he, he, big picture, um, um, what I, and you're right about the working class uh, movement that, that you have to expand it, but you, you basically look at most of America. I mean, I guess I don't understand why ICS is so hoodwinked. You know, we talk about the time, the post-war period, post-World War II period. This is one of my mantras. I'm sorry if people have heard it before. <laughs> but there was a time when taxes on the wealthiest Americans were extremely high, 90% during World War II. They 80%, 70%. They didn't really come down until Reagan. Dad could have afford to, uh, you know, take care of the whole family. Unions were very strong. There was a time when millions of middle-class Americans were really flourishing, and I think the American dream was more alive. It wasn't that long ago. I remember it when I was a little kid. So I guess what I wonder about is why do so many of us seem to get fooled? Um, you know, fooled by, and, and by why wasn't there an, uh, people marching on the street when the president got through a tax cut that was for billionaires and large corporations? I don't get it. You know, I, I think... One of the things that, that, that really emerged for me as I was reporting on reporting winners take all was the, the way in which oligarchy works is that first you have money and then you use money to buy power and then you use the power to protect your monopoly on future money. 
And I think yeah. it's really important for people to understand that loop. When we talk about bailouts and the kinds of things you're talking about, that's the larger, un, that's the larger thing we're witnessing, the thing underneath what we're witnessing, right? So people, you get money, you buy influence, you use the influence to protect your money. And so when a bailout happens for corporations and not people, it's not just because our, you know, our senators are, 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 you know, don't care about us. It's because the entire architecture of the system is designed for them to not care about us and to care about some, you know, airline that has spent the last few years buying back its own stock more than more than us. And, and, and I think, you know, in the 2008 crisis, there was a real failure for the government to, on the part of the government to, uh, you know, exert the right, uh, put the right strings, attach the right strings uh, to the money it was giving people, yep. uh, particularly finance. And there's an opportunity to do that now. Fine, you want to do bailouts? Great. I have a bunch of different, uh, I have a bunch of different requests that would make airline travel much more civilized for me and you and everybody else. Um, why don't we do a passenger bill of rights tied to this bailout? You want that bailout? Great. Stop charging us for you know luggage. Stop doing this and that. Let 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 the government actually say okay. The, remember, the government is us. So this is something we often forget in the United States of America. The government is us. The government's just like our collective lawyer, right? So the government should go to the airlines and say, hey, I'm representing 350 million people whose hard-earned money you want. That's fine. Here's 10 things we want, the 350 million people want, if they're going to give you their money. This thing. And it's not totally cool to let you hack it out in the free market that you all claim you believe in. So, so, why, so why don't we do that? Um, it's just, it's just. I mean, Democrats seem closer to that than Republicans, obviously. Why don't Republicans get on board with any of that? It's just because they're getting money from the airlines and their campaign owned. coffers? Is it, they're owned by big because business? Because few Republicans listen to Boston Public Radio. We're going to change that. <laughs> um, you know, look, I, I think it's, I think it's um, because there has been for 40 years and th- in some ways, this is the, the like meta context for my reporting in Winners Take All, which is that for 40 years, we have been told a story that government is bad. Government right. is evil. Yeah. Government is a leech. Government is coming for your, you know, your wife and your guns. And, you know, this story was so successful that Democrats, I mean, this story definitely originated on the right. Democrats capitulated to yep. the story in many ways and felt the need to say, well, government's not terrible, but yes, it is overbearing. It can be too much. We've got to trim regulations. You know, you have Bill Clinton saying the era of big government is over, so on and so forth. So I think what needs to happen now, and this, is, this has been my advice to Democrats um, free of charge, is Democrats need to make an equal and opposite case for government, not some apologetic, half-capitulating you know, well, government is kind of crappy, but, you know, it does have some good things about it. Like, not like we should do, you know, health care for all who want it, but like an active militant case for government. Because you know what? There's no rich person in this society who's done as much for old people as Social Security has done. There is no one who has done more for the health care of poor people than Medicaid has done. There is no rich person who's helped African-Americans more than the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. African Americans. So this notion that billionaires are going to save us is completely belied by everything that happened until right now called history. 
And, and so we need to actually regain the confidence in our collective institutions, which, as I say, are us, and reassert the notion that while most activity in the society will always be private activity and private provision of goods and services, we need vigorous collective institutions to defend us from those things that we are too powerless individually to defend ourselves on. And a pandemic is only the most dramatic illustration of what has been true all along. And what I, what I hope is that in addition to this being a time of, of mourning, of profound sadness, of profound loss of life, of, of deep, deep uh, cruelty in the, in the economy, I also hope um, that this is going to be a moment coming out of this pandemic, and we will come out of it. This is going to be a moment of greater creative possibility for reimagining America than any of us may have seen in our lifetime. And it's going to be really important to seize on that. On kind of take 60 more seconds, I think, to end on an optimistic note. Another person who tried to tamp down expectations was Barack Obama. I think it was in November when he was at that Democracy Alliance and said this is still a country that is less revolutionary than it is interested in improvement and sounded to most of us like it was an anti-Warren, anti-Sanders pronouncement without naming them. Right uh, in the 11 o'clock hour, I know that uh, Barack Obama in a 12-minute video endorsed uh, Joe Biden, and you tweeted right before you came on with us, what is striking about this, and we obviously haven't had a chance to hear Obama yet, what is striking about this endorsement is the way Obama implicitly embraces the ideas of the progressive wing of the party and suggests he would be running differently if he ran today, even as he endorses Joe Biden. Could you give us just a couple of seconds on what he said that caused you to draw that conclusion? You know, it's very interesting because he, he obviously stayed out of this. He did make some of those comments, as you indicated, that, that suggested where his sympathies Way, but you know, I, I think he also admires people who, you know, as someone in the game, uh, once in the game, he admires people who are who are connecting with people, and 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 he made the point that you know, if he were running, if now is not twelve years ago, and if he were running now, he wouldn't run the way he did then, and that a lot of these folks, he specifically talked about big structural change. Um, which is not a phrase Joe Biden uses, a phrase more on the progressive wing of the party, um, that big structural change is necessary. And he went through a bunch of issues that were, that were really more Bernie and Elizabeth issues, um, student debt um, and other things. Uh, and, he, and, and he kind of implicitly, there was this jab at a lot of conventional centrist Democrat thinking, which is like, we're not just going to be able to solve these things through tax credits. And stuff like that, right? Which, if you follow politics closely and, 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 and kind of internal democratic tensions closely, that's a kind of jab at, in a way, his own wing of the party. And it was very interesting. He's, he's clearly trying to appeal to the Bernie and Elizabeth people who are on the fence maybe about whether to go with Bernie. Um, so he was doing that for a reason. But it was interesting to have Barack Obama say, look, I'm not a, I'm not a kind of stick in time um, 2020 is different from 2008. The country has moved. There is more more political possibility on some of these issues. And we, we should be much more ambitious than I was able or willing to be. Okay, Anand, Anand we really enjoyed this yeah, time. Thank you. You've absolutely made my day. Love talking to you. <laughs> Can't talk to you enough. Thank you very much for, jo- for joining us. <laughs> no, so thank you for leavening my quarantine. I appreciate it. <laughs> okay. Good Anand to speak with you. Girdadas is a time editor at large. His latest book, and everybody should go out and get it, is Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Change in the World. 
Nad Giridas, thank you so much for joining us. Up next, could this pandemic be presenting a Sputnik moment of our education system? Paul Revel joins us for that and more. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Bradley and Marjorie. And joining us online to talk about all the ways coronavirus is challenging our education infrastructure and the opportunities it may be presenting along the way is Paul Revel. Paul's a professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where he also runs the Education Redesign Lab. His latest book, co-author with Elaine Weiss, is Broader, Bolder, Better, How Schools and Communities Help Students Overcome the Disadvantages of Poverty. Hello, Paul Revel. Good morning, Jim and Marjorie, in these uh, Twilight Zone coronavirus times again. Yes, I know. They are Twilight Zone coronavirus times. But you know something, Paul? I look forward to my daily walk. And I have to say, I saw you and your wife, Julie, and your daughter on our daily walk. It was very lovely. Did we had a, social distance? We had a socially distant conversation. Oh, you were looking very spiff in your khaki shorts, Paul. Notice those right away. <laughs> and we all had our masks on. I, I, I hasten to add, everybody was being compliant, and uh, the sun was out. The and sun was, it was yeah, very nice. Nice routines that result from this. I mean, yeah. have you ever thought you'd be so attached to walking around the block in your life <laughs> should become now? It's no, quite no. <laughs> and, the, and the block is mobbed with people walking out. I have to say, many people are getting out there. I mean, yeah. everybody's going stir crazy. Okay, so get, we'll get back to business here, Paul Revo. Um, we are about uh, five weeks or so into the online learning for a lot of K through 12 um, kids around here. Um, actually, around all the, the all the kids around here and all around the country, as Jim just said. Yeah, what's what's the verdict? Do we know how are things going? Well, I mean, I think uh, on the one hand, the education sector should be applauded. They've made lots of quick adjustments. Uh, places like uh, Boston Public Schools have bent over backwards to uh, provide Chromebooks to, uh, you know, more than 20,000 Chromebooks they've purchased in a short period of time. Um, the, uh, you know, the problem is it's wildly uneven. You know, kids who are in private schools and some of the affluent suburban schools uh, were able to flip a switch relatively quickly, and the online education is working relatively smoothly. In other districts, <clears throat> the performance has been very uneven because students lack the technology. They lack the Internet connections. Um, teachers hadn't had sufficient training. They didn't have the curricula or the platforms to do it. So, uh, you know, while um, I think the, the sector deserves applause in general, there's a long way to go to make this smooth and, and regular in any kind of way. So you know, in other words, a... I was just going to say this is one of your recurring themes. So it worked very well for the people in a certain socioeconomic place and not so well for those who are n- not in that place. Yeah, I think unless we're careful, uh, this era where we go heavily into educational technology and reliance on online delivery uh, runs the risk of further advantaging the advantage and further disadvantaging the disadvantaged unless we use it and pivot in this moment to create a more level playing field. And, you know, that's in fairness what systems, again, like Boston are trying to do is all of a sudden level that playing field. Now, I would argue that we should have been attending to this a long time ago. You know, I look at systems like Brookline and Newton and so forth that had a number of students who didn't have adequate access to technology 
And one would have thought that would have been corrected a long time ago so as to be prepared for this kind of moment. Not just that, so as to take advantage of online learning and the possibilities it presents. I mean, after all, online learning is one way to break down the the spatial and temporal boundaries of school. We, we go to school 180 days a year, six, six and a half hours a day. But if you, if you use online, both synchronous and asynchronous learning, you can, you can wipe out those boundaries and learning can be virtually around the clock. And, and our sector has been slow at adopting technology. We typically lag behind the, you know, the private sector, for example. Now's an opportunity because we're catapulted into the 21st century to use these tools more effectively and, and use them for equity purposes. But unless we're careful, it'll have the opposite effect. You know, the, I read a story, which I'm sure you read in the New York Times a few days ago, this comprehensive look at online learning in K-12 through schools. As schools move online, many students stay logged out. And just to give a little human touch to what you said a minute ago, uh, Titilayo Aluka, 18, a junior at Landmark High School in Manhattan, is one of the students trying hard to keep up with her classes who have been thwarted by her lack of access to technology. She has a district-issued laptop but no Wi-Fi network in her Bronx apartment since her family had trouble paying the monthly bill. Quote, this is from the 18-year-old, this is heartbreaking. I actually need my teachers who know me and understand me to help me, and I don't have that. I just keep thinking, oh, my God, I might not pass. I'm just really scared for the future. And when you monitor this stuff, and obviously I don't do it like you do, but I've been reading a ton of this stuff around the country. And I would argue that while for the most part teachers and administrators do seem to be doing every single thing they possibly can, but as an observer rather than a student of these kinds of things, and I consider – I mean you – like a student of these issues, it seems to me that this is a disaster, not because people don't want to do it uh, right, but because it's it's like trying to reinvent – well, it is reinventing in, education in the middle of a crisis. It isn't like we planned for this. And so it, it, how do they – I mean, what, this story is also no, – what do you do – well, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, I think that's a fair analysis, Jim. I mean, it, it, it's as though a, an earthquake has hit the sector, and we're coming up out of that and saying, oh, my God, we should have had certain preventative measures in place. We should have had a redundant backup system in place. Now we've got to get people up, moving around, taking nutrition, being healthy. We've got to put in place uh, you know, some semblance of the old system, and we've got to put in place preventative system so this never happens again and to try and do all that under the pressure of a crisis is very difficult and consequently the performance is not even and sequential like you would have in a planned strategic process it's it's relatively um, herky-jerky and uh, you know but we're making headway uh, and it's just uh, you know it's figuring out a lot of things that we haven't figured out just take the internet access I know mm-hmm. a lot of districts now are thinking gee, you know, we've created some hotspots around town for people to go, but they can't get it in their homes. We've given them Chromebooks or whatever laptops to take home, but they can't really use them. We're going to have to start putting in our budget money for students to have year-round Internet in their homes. You know, this is something that they never would have thought about in their budgets, you know, two months ago. Uh, and, and suddenly they're, they're seeing this as a new reality, and a way of bringing learning into the 21st century 
and leveling the playing field between disadvantaged kids and advantaged kids. So I think, you know, we're, there are some breakthroughs, but it's it's kind of messy right now. Can we in a minute we'll get to how you, one pays for all this additional stuff? I know a lot of school administrators are begging for Betsy DeVos to release some money that was in the CARES Act, which I don't know if she's doing, but even if she is, it seems inadequate to me. Before you know, you've written this piece in the Boston Globe. Uh, coronavirus gives us an opportunity to rethink K through twelve education, and hopefully, in a big picture way, it will coming out of this. Even though we're we're hoping that that's the case in a whole variety of ways around inequities, but much more immediately, how do we make up in the short term for what these K through twelve kids have lost? I mean, I read things from half year promotion rather than full year promotion, full time summer school for particularly marginalized kids, what's the, what is the fix that people like you and superintendents and teachers are discussing around the country to make up for this loss? Well, first of all, I, I think we have to acknowledge there is going to be some loss. I mean, we've had a disaster. That is going to cost us something in time, and some of that could be made up, and some will not be able to be made up. We have to do the best we can in the present you know, to uh, restore connections to students so students continue to have uh, the opportunity to learn online or in any other way we can fashion. But then I think we need to look to the sort of next threshold. To me, the next threshold is summer. We've got to be bending over backwards. And again, you see this in Boston, and I commend the superintendent on her leadership in this area, and the organizations like Boston After School and Beyond you know, are working around the clock, I know now, but, you know, in, in trying to get as much as we possibly can on the table for, uh, you know, engaging, enriching opportunities for young people this summer. I mean, for example, you know, we've had, as many other cities had, a, a robust summer jobs program. Now, in New York City, they've canceled their summer uh, jobs program. Tens of thousands of summer jobs oh. that teenagers were going to have in, in New York are just gone. In Boston, you know, the pick and so forth, they're holding on to trying to make this work. Uh, So I think right off the bat, the first uh, threshold here is to make the most of summer. Frankly, I'm hoping that summer will now, because of this new, um, because of the crisis and a new way of thinking about the future, summer may uh, become what many of us have felt it should have been all along Mm -hmm. is an entitlement rather than an option, rather than an accident of birth. You get access to summer learning if you happen to come from a family who can afford to give it to you or not. Uh, We need to have opportunities for every child this summer. As we look at next year, it's quite likely that next year will be punctuated. It may start late. It may be interrupted in the fall or midwinter. Uh, it may be interrupted in the spring again, as we've seen this year. Uh, we're going to have to start thinking about the following summer of 2021 as, you know, real-time learning opportunity and something that's available to everyone, not just a few. So we've got to pivot in the crisis. There'll be some lost ground, undeniably, but we've got to bend over backward to attend to the equity dimension of this and make sure it isn't making our achievement gaps even worse than they already are. You know, we're talking um, to Paul uh, Revel. He's from the Harvard University's Graduate School of Education. Paul, in your piece in The Globe, you know, you touch on your recurring themes that you talked about with us here, that, you know, only 20% of children's waking hours between kindergarten and high school are spent in school, uh, that we have spent 
decades uh, trying to reform uh, education and trying to, uh, a considerable time trying to close the socioeconomic gap between kids who have money and kids who don't. And you say it's not working. So, it, 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 and you compare this, I think it's great, like a wake up moment like Sputnik was back in the late 50s when the Russians uh, be, were beating us in the, in the space program. And then we came revving back to beat them. So it, it, it seems like. Um, this, what you're saying is this should be an opportunity for us to do a total revamp of a system that basically is failing kids who don't have any money. So what does that mean? Well, you know, I've, I've likened it to sort of a tidal wave that pulls back the sea, uh, revealing the ocean floor. And on the ocean floor, um, you know, beneath our ordinary viewpoint, we're unable to see it usually, we see all sorts of uncomfortable uh, realities. And in, in the case of education, we see all kinds of deep inequities relative to the conditions of life in which some of our students live, um, you know, having to do with health care and nutrition and housing and Internet access and ed, ed technology access and so on and so forth. And my point is that we, we see this now because of school closings. We had previously assumed, at least in the general public, you know, the people who've lived these conditions are obviously aware of them. People who are close to children or, you know, students of education and following it are aware of these realities. But there hasn't been a widespread public perception because the thought was school will take care of all these things. Well, as I've argued for a long time, school doesn't have the capacity to take care at scale of health care problems, of housing problems, of nutrition problems, of the basic elements of poverty that so often get in the way of children coming to school uh, at all or coming to school ready to learn when they get there. I'm hoping that by virtue of this being revealed to the public, it's now on the front pages because schools have closed and people are saying, well, what about Internet? What about nutrition? What about all these things? Suddenly it um, it's highlighted to the general public. Now, the only problem with that formulation is so are many other inequities out exactly. there. Exactly. Colleagues in the in the health department are making the same case. And Health is just one feature of the argument I'm making, but it's a whole industry in itself. And people in healthcare are saying, now do you see why we need universal health care uh, and, and more emphasis on preventative medicine and so on and so forth, all kinds of things. So there are many competing priorities in this moment. But as an education advocate, I'm pushing hard to take advantage of this crisis and make it an opportunity for dealing with some equity issues that have to do with the surround of children's lives. Uh, in which education sits as a relatively small but central feature. But but is it too small? I guess you talk about a year-round calendar. You talk about more time. I mean, perhaps more time in school. Maybe okay. I know we uh, we've disagreed about having kids in school till six o'clock. I'd have them in school till six o'clock because that enables mom and dad to stay at their job. But that twenty percent is not enough. That maybe we need twenty-five percent or twenty-seven percent or or thirty percent or something. Well, we, we need to move it up. We need to differentiate. Some kids have very full lives, full of enrichment, full of support, and are doing just fine, thank you very much, with the existing schedule because their parents have a great deal of financial capital, social capital, opportunities and supports that they can give them outside of school. Other children don't necessarily, and this crisis reveals it very starkly to the general public, have those opportunities to learn outside of school, have those enriching summer camps or tutoring or athletic leagues or whatever it might be. So I'm not just talking about 
you know, m more time in schools in the conventional way where you have students sitting at desks doing schoolwork per se, although we may need more of that for some people some of the time, but I'm talking about the whole surround which makes up a child's life. As I, I keep coming back to the analogy, if we want to know how to have children be successful at scale, take a look at what the upper middle class family typically does for its children from prenatal all the way until they're in their 20s and 30s. It's wraparound services 365 days of the year, constant enrichment, constant support. And there's no shortcut to that. School isn't a shortcut to that. It's too weak an intervention. Uh, school is essential. School makes all the difference. School changes lives. But it isn't doing it at scale. We still have an iron law correlation between socioeconomic status and educational achievement and attainment. So this crisis is an opportunity to see that clearly in this moment and maybe do something about it. Very briefly, uh, uh, Paul, because I want to move to higher ed for a second. It, realistically, it's just a matter of time till the state cancels the rest of the K through 12 years. Is that not a fair statement? I think that's probably the most likely outcome. I mean, we, we now have an order that is in effect until May 4th. Right. We've seen other jurisdictions, New York City, moved, you know, in the view of some people, too hastily. I mean, you know, the, the, the situation keeps changing and the numbers come in differently. So uh, I'm not sure where it'll land, but that would be my best guess at this point. So moving, to, there's a story in the Globe today, which I'm sure is not a surprise to you, that a lot of uh, colleges, I don't know if Harvard is amongst them, is already planning for the possibility that there'll be no students in classes in the fall. One of my favorite lines from March was the lead line in this op-ed in the uh, New York Times, what is a college education in the time of coronavirus? And the opening line is uh, a tweet from a Barnard student, which was watching the entire Ivy League slowly turn into the University of Phoenix, which, was, <laughs> yeah. which is the sort yeah. of the original and big time is online. On matchbooks when everybody still had matchbooks? Were they well, maybe, but it's there? also on TV. This is the, the <laughs> online learning kind of, of thing. But it, it's so one, I'm curious to know whether you think uh, uh, that is also real. But the conventional wisdom is we don't have to worry about some of the inequities you're talking about uh, in a higher ed. And that you know this, I guess, 10 times better than I, uh, but I'm learning it through this. Stephanie Lydon on Greater Boston did a package last week about uh, uh, kids and I, who were first-generation college kids who were having to drive around in their cars to find internet hotspots so that they could uh, right. do their classes. So there are nightmares there, too, that are not unlike that being experienced by kids in K through 12. No? Absolutely. I mean, the New York Times did a wonderful feature, and they said, you know, we thought when we were at college we were an equal. But when this happened, it showed the profound inequalities, and then it traced the lives of children when they went back home, what they had, or if they could go back home at all. The feature you're talking about on, on GBH you know, showed some students in the dorms at places like BC and BU, you know, who couldn't go home because they didn't right, have any right, right, right. kind of a, a situation mm -hmm. that would support learning at home. So they're living by themselves, you know, in, in basically an empty dorm and trying to find food, trying to find internet access and just barely getting by while other kids are in, you know, vacation homes in the lap of luxury and have everything they need in order to survive until school gets called back into session. So I think, yeah, I mean, this 
This demonstrates some of those same inequities that exist outside of college that have a big effect on kids when they're in college and affect things like who get who completes college and who's resilient and who gets knocked out by health problems or financial problems. Um, the the issue you point to is, you know, suddenly the Ivy League's charging five times what the University of Phoenix or the University of Southern New Hampshire is charging, or 10 times that amount. Uh, and those institutions may be uh, actually more expert exactly. and more effective great at delivering point. online curricula uh, than we are. And so how it. long can you justify that price uh, for uh, – uh, just for a label, maybe the high prestige institutions will continue to be able to charge at high levels because people want to, the imprimatur of the Ivy League. But it's going to affect a lot of middle level uh, colleges to say nothing of the more vulnerable colleges who we're already starting to see, as in the case of Pine Manor, um, are potentially being dealt a death blow by this crisis. So. Uh, and then I think with respect to the other point that you made, a lot of schools are, you know, are, you know, planning for the worst and hoping for the best. So they're, you know, we're all starting to think about, well, what does it look like if students don't return in the fall or even more likely, what does it look like if they come for a while in the fall and then they have to yeah. leave and come back and so on and so forth. I know a lot of families, in fact, I'm talking to uh, my high school senior daughter who's already been accepted into college about, you know, maybe you should take a gap year. This is going to be a very odd, punctuated, difficult, challenging kind of year. Maybe it'd be better to do national community service or something this year and wait for the world to normalize and come back and have a, have a normal year, assuming that we ever come back to something that we think of now as normal. Um, so I, there's a lot of, uh, uh, anxiety, agitation, and frankly, planning going on at these institutions because it, we aren't just going to revert to the status quo ante and go back to normal with a flip of the switch. You know, uh, and so we're planning. Uh, last thing from me, Paul, is despite you know all the stuff I've read and the stuff that you're talking about, how how uh, colleges and superintendents of K through twelve are working to figure out how to fill the hole that was created by this new kind of learning for which we were not prepared. Do you not worry that the Globe Spotlight team in 15 years is going to do a story about a lost generation of students who, because of this break, never caught up, never realized their potential, and and despite, again, the best efforts of those in charge, we were never able to figure out how to provide them what they lost during this this period is that overly pessimistic and worrisome I, yeah i think that's a little pessimistic Jim. good i i i have seen you know a lot of really sort of high level scrambling going on here uh, to ensure that that's not the outcome that we get from this and i i do think it's a combination of sort of an emergency response in our field as well as sort of an enlightened exploitation of an opportunity to make things different and make things better. Everybody's got to lean into this. I mean, the, uh, uh, the, the, the school boards, the state leadership, you know, the superintendents, the unions have got to get on board with this. Um, you know, teachers on the front line are already on board with it. Families are going to have to be engaged. Students are going to have to think differently. But I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of scrambling in the next year is, I think, going to be um, uneasy and uncomfortable in a number of ways and different and change is hard. Uh, but I think we're going to land on our feet in the end. 
I hope you're right. Okay, Paul Bravo, thank you very much. Thanks. Looking forward to meeting you again on our on our Brookline again. walks. <laughs> Maybe we'll see you on the walk. Okay, thanks, Paul. Take care, Paul. Paul. Thank you. Paul Bravo joins us regularly. He's a professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where he also runs the Education Redesign Lab. His latest book, co-author, co-authored with Elaine Weiss, Broader, Bolder, Better, How Schools and Communities Help Students Overcome the Disadvantages of Poverty. Thanks again, Paul. Up next... What does the pandemic mean for the 4th of July celebration on the Esplanade? Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart is here for that and more. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie. And so last week, Mayor Walsh warned us that if we didn't adhere to the city's social distancing rules, we may not have a summer. To put that in far bleaker terms, imagine no Boston Pops fireworks spectacular on the 4th of July. Well, it hasn't come to that yet, but already we've lost our spring. Amid the coronavirus outbreaks, the Boston Pops has decided to cancel its entire spring 2020 season, which was set to celebrate Keith Lockhart's 25th anniversary leading the orchestra. Keith joins us now. How are you holding up, Keith Lockhart? Well, you know, that's a question you think about these days. I'm, uh, I'm fine. I'm healthy. My family is fine. We're all together. So, you know, we're luckier than other people. But uh, this has been quite a kick in the gut. Uh, when was it we last talked? I was on the show a couple months Not ago. Announcing the spring about season. Sting coming to play at Symphony Hall with you. Yes, we were talking about a lot of things that we're not talking about yeah. anymore. It's just who could have who could have possibly you know written the screenplay to what has happened over the last month. You know, so were... hard. How did this come about? How hard was this to arrive at this decision? And what what were the turning points? The decision regarding the spring season. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, uh, it, I mean, from a personal point of view, I was I was being chased for the last few days of the. Uh, uh, before we started closing things down, I uh, did a concert in Paris on the 7th of March, um, and they banned such gatherings on the 8th of March. Oh, <laughs> oh. So, uh, I, I came back. I was actually doing concerts in Sarasota with the orchestra there. We got the first one of four in, and then the other three were canceled as they closed the venue. Made my way home, picked up the family, and we headed to the Cape uh, where we are now and are for the foreseeable future. Um, in terms of the spring season, uh, the discussions, of course, started right around that time, 13th, 14th, 15th of March. And, uh, you know, we we just kept modeling different scenarios. What if we started late? What if we compressed the season? What if we uh, limited the number of people who could come into a symphony hall? All of those things. But eventually, I think as, as dawned on a whole lot of people, there was just no practical uh, and morally responsible way to go forward in a situation, you know, uh, the, the performing arts depend on large groups of people coming together to, in the case of an orchestra, see another large group of people up on the stage. And obviously we are we are we are low hanging fruit in this situation. Yeah. So in that video I saw of you playing the piano, it's very impressive, actually, Keith Lockhart playing the piano. Was that in Boston or Cape Cod? What kind of piano was that? And your little dog curled up underneath the piano. I want to know what the dog's name is. 
<laughs> well, that was actually, uh, and we have a, a tiny and comfortable 1947 Cape House that seems even tinier than it did a month ago. <laughs> I no uh, doubt. But it's, prob- but, it, but it's probably the only the only uh, the only house on the beach that has a piano in it because that's kind of necessary for my line of work. That's yeah. a a lovely five and a half foot baby grand Zeiler, which oh, is a beautiful. German piano that I have had since. Uh, before I came to Boston, and uh, and so it's it's a it's a wonderful place. The kids practice every day, and they're having virtual lessons with their with their teacher. The dog's name is Oban, uh, like uh, the town in Scotland and the Scotch, because oh, oh. uh, he's about the same color. And uh, he is now going on twelve years old, but he doesn't know that yet. Nor does he. He also seems, you know, totally unflummoxed by uh, the coronavirus. <laughs> He's faring well. I just wonder, you know, we've heard a lot about the beaches down the Cape. Are people, I know that a lot of the parking lots have been closed and stuff. Are the beaches near you open or not? Well, I live a little bit, we live a little bit off the grid. It's a, it's a quiet neighborhood yeah. uh, and uh, with a lot of uh, small summer houses, older sorts of things, no McMansions, which is nice. And, uh, and there are a couple of uh, public parking areas near us, and they have had a few people in them, but uh, they haven't overtly closed the parking okay. lots here yet. But generally, we've seen, you know, people taking the air and uh, stretch of the leg and, uh, and walking down the beach. But the population density here is very low, which I think is probably as it should be at this point, if you can. Keith seems to be saying essentially indirectly we shouldn't stop by anytime soon. I think that's <laughs> well, I that's think, the message I'm getting I think from the, Keith Locker. Connors, I'd love just to assume, have you over. Yeah, block down I'll the bridge. Drink on the other side. Of, <laughs> I'll leave a drink on the other end of the porch, and that's right. We can talk. So, Keith, before this, uh, this uh, uh, another piece of the nightmare, namely the pop season being put off, and obviously the BSO is in the same situation. Did you know? That 1890 was the only other time this had happened, and why? Or did you just learn that? I did that. I did know that actually. It's because uh, we've we've had that. That's always been kind of an inside joke for years. I believe this year was supposed to be the 135th season of the Boston Pops. But if we started in in uh, 1885, a little subtraction will tell you it should be the 180. 136th year mm. and so of course the question was asked well why is that and the, we didn't have an 1890 season but i think the reason for that one which was that management forgot to pull a liquor license in time to have absolutely charming and so much more innocent a reason than we have right now you know consider you know everybody who shut in is having to deal with different psychological challenges i should say and hopefully not physical challenges as well, at least physical challenges relating to coronavirus. But for somebody who's used to being surrounded by lots of people, not just coworkers, but as you said a minute ago, audience, how are you dealing with this? I know your first concerns are your family and your health and all that stuff. But in terms of withdrawal from the public part of who you are, how hard has that transition been, Keith Lockhart? Well, you know, the funny thing is, privately, I'm, I'm, I'm not really, I don't really crave uh, large public gatherings. People will tell you I'm the least party type person they, they know. Uh, what I do crave is the chance to do what it is that I love, and, and that's music and communication. And uh, for the first time and now going on a 40-year career, I look at my calendar and realize that's not happening this month. That's not happening next month. That's not happening the month after that. Uh, you know, and who knows? And uh, 
been spending a lot of time. I don't I haven't been spending a lot of time conducting because there's no one to conduct. That's the thing about conductors; they don't they don't make any sound on their own. I've been playing some more piano, just just you know the need to express, but uh, but also just spending a lot of time thinking about which I think a lot of us in arts leadership need to think about is where we go from here. What's it going to look like on the other side? Because I think people who think that it will just be like, you know, we hit the pause button and it all just goes on again. I think uh, that's overly optimistic. Well, that's where we wanted to go next. What are your thoughts? And I know they're just thoughts, but obviously it's, it's good that you are thinking ahead. How do you see the transition the back to relative normalcy when it comes well, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, my crystal ball doesn't work any better than anybody's. And if you had told me you know, five weeks ago we'd be having this conversation, I would, you know, I would have said you're crazy. Uh, but when you look at it, I mean, I think there's the optimist in me says that uh, this time spent apart, spent in isolation, not spent with other people, either our friends, our relatives, or even, you know, the, the general population is going to make us crave um, that sort of engagement. I mean, uh, people are social animals at the end of the day, and the arts are all about uh, you know, performing arts. Well, for the individual artists, they're about self-expression. But in terms of why we do them and why people care, they're about community. They're about gathering together to share a you know have a shared emotional experience uh, and. That is so. That is so necessary to what we do. I've been concerned over the last years, anyway, with the increasing ubiquity of people getting their entertainment, getting their education, getting their whatever engagement with the world uh, virtually uh, in their own bubble. Uh, and you know that that is kind of counter that kind of countermands what it is that the arts try to do. Uh, and I hope the pessimist in me hopes that that. This doesn't push people further away. Um, and uh, But I do think at the end of the day, when we all come out of the bunkers, uh, it's going to be, I think most people recognize by now, it's going to be a slow rollout back to normal. And I think those of us who love the arts and think that they're a hypercritical part of, of society are going to have to work extra hard. We're really going to have to be disciples for this. We're going to have to really not just open the doors and wait for people to come back in, but we're going to have to bring them in. So a slow rollout prompts, I'm sure, your least favorite question during this period. When and how do you decide about July 4th? And then after July 4th, how do you and your colleagues decide? Well, not even not even after July 4th. How do you and your colleagues decide about Tanglewood? Well, of course, those are the two next things uh, down the line. And, uh, you know, everybody is, of course, canceling, you know, in a rolling way, hoping that things will will get better. And um, we have the Boston, the BSO has uh, organizationally decided that by mid-May, we'll have to make the decisions on both of those things. And as you know, to a large extent, those are not our decisions to make. They have a lot to do with... uh, with uh, the acceptability of public gatherings. Uh, And, uh, you know, who knows? Uh, I would love to see an all clear that allows the 4th of July and the Tanglewood summer season to go forth uh, in in, in a somewhat uninterrupted way. Uh, We'll we'll stay in contact with public health officials and with the CDC. And we'll also measure, you know, the, the costs of opening uh, versus the cost of not opening. With something like the 4th of July, it's such 
a ramp up. I mean, that it's not a venue that sits there and waits for us to come and take it over. It's a huge operational uh, battle on many, many fronts to get everything together to the, that concert. Mm-hmm. We can't decide on July 1st that we're going to do it. So, um, you know, it's, it, as you know, the frustrating thing about this time is, is both that we, we sit here and we make plans, but then we just don't know. And so, so, so we sit here and make plans and then sit on those plans until somebody gets us, gives us another scrap of information. I, I likened it to when you sit in the airport and uh, they come here at the gate and your flight's delayed and they get on and they say, well, it'll be about 45 minutes. And 50 minutes later, they get on and say, well, it looks a little more serious than we thought. It's going to be another hour. And, you know, you wish yeah. they could tell you it was six hours or it wasn't going to go at all because then you could start getting your mind around that. We're talking to Keith Lockhart, who's conductor of the Boston Pops. What do you hear about your musicians? What's the impact on them? Well, it's, I mean, as as you can imagine for, again, every performing artist, musicians, actors, Broadway, all of those things are all completely shuttered at this point. And uh, a, a lot of my colleagues, uh, and especially the freelance colleagues, the ones who make up the Esplanade Orchestra, spend a good deal of their time teaching. I know a lot of people have rolled over into a, a virtual teaching uh, sort of situation, which is not ideal because music is really, it's a kinetic thing. You know, it's really hard to uh, really evaluate and really get somebody to improve, uh, you know, long distance. But it is possible, and there is something to be had there. But um, you know, with in, in the case of the, the freelance musicians, uh, a whole lot of people is a, a whole lot of the performing arts is based on the gig economy sort of thing, and a lot of those people have a real hard time in situations like this. And we just have to hope that there's there's some relief coming for for. For those people, and as to all of my colleagues in the BSO, it's it's hard for everybody. And you know, as the organization goes to, down the road, if we're unable to open, then obviously more and more tough decisions will have to be made. So we're talking to Keith Lockhart, who apparently will be celebrating his 25th season anniversary in his 26th year <laughs> with the Boston Pops. But I guess that's how it goes. So what's this at home <laughs> thing? Uh, that uh, both the BSO and you guys are uh, doing. I think the the Boston Pops piece is coming out in a few weeks. What's that going to What's going to be available for people who are at home, Keith Lockhart? Well, this has been a, a big success. I mean, you know, everybody wants to be able to stay in touch, and it's really hypercritical for us to to stay connected with our audience. And uh, from the time that the BSO started canceling its concerts in, in March uh, through the end of the regular BSO season in May, they've been uh, pioneering something called uh, BSO at Home, which has been a mix of different kinds of experiences available online through the BSO website, uh, including uh, small concerts, uh, individual musicians from the orchestra, rebroadcasts of uh, concerts and recordings that have been made with commentary and uh, uh, involvement from uh, members of the BSO family, uh, various master classes, that sort of thing. And the idea is that we will uh, transition to the pops at home uh, starting around the time uh, we would have opened, somewhere around the 4th of May, I think. With a mix of things, I'm going to try to talk to some of the guest artists whom I was so looking forward to uh, working with this year. I've been communicating 
been sending a lot of uh, so sorry uh, emails <laughs> over the last couple of weeks. Uh, but hopefully have some conversations with, with them, maybe with, you know, John Meacham or Penn and Teller, or, um, you know, Amanda Palmer, uh, about uh, what we're thinking, where the world is, what we're going to do musically when we finally get together. We're going to uh, rebroadcast uh, lots of performances, uh, including some archival um, things that will take us all the way back into uh, Feedless time. Hoping to see some of those uh, Evening of Pops episodes, for instance, that people haven't seen in some years, uh, and uh, provide some live concert material as well with uh, individuals and our family who are willing to do that. Keith, how's Anders Nelson's doing? Have you guys been in touch? Um, I have not. I've been. Uh, Mark Volpe has been the managing director, yeah. the CEO of the BSO, uh, and uh, you know he's stuck on the other side of the pond. Uh, he's very frustrated uh he's you know i feel not just for well you know it's 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 tough it's 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 very tough all all andres does is music he lives and breathes music and uh when all that is taken from you so abruptly it's uh it's it's hard it's it's hard to figure out who you are because uh, you know i and speaking personally i know i i define myself by the fact that i'm a performing artist and uh now i'm not that what i am now is a Really good elementary school math teacher. That's ex- <laughs> I can't believe you said that. I was going to ask what course you've got. A couple of young kids there yeah. with you. So is math your course of choice, or what's the deal? No, not really. I come from a family of mathematicians and engineers, oh. so it's not any. I was I was always the kid who was good at math and couldn't stand it. So mm. uh, I was so that part. But that part is no problem. But we're also uh, we're you know, we're kind of expanding uh, literature. We were doing. European countries and capitals the other day we did a little chapter we just you know it's it's fun to find ways to teach I've got two very eager learners who are both very bright and and great readers and all that and uh, one of the most fun things is we'll we'll take a long walk uh, down the mostly empty streets here and uh, we'll do let's 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 talk about the Civil War today you know that's oh. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, I help them with their practice. It, I, I help them, I think, more than they want me to help them with their practice. You know, little knowledge is <laughs> a dangerous thing. Of course you thing. do. And I've been doing bread making. How about you guys? What do Whoa. you guys Whoa! I've been I bread eating, that. actually. Yeah, bread eating. You know, you talk about the ki- going for the long walk with the kids. We are across the street. Well, you've been to our studio, Keith Lockhart. But across the street is the pretty big New Balance parking lot. And every day mm-hmm. I see families come by here because I, I think they're probably stuck in apartments in Brighton and Austin. And they've got three and four kids with them. Today they've got two kids on a bicycle, one little kid in a scooter. And they're there either riding up and down the parking lot or running up and down the parking lot. It just reminds you how kids cooped up um, in the city. I mean, it's just like a nightmare. <laughs> These kids are like... It is. It is you know, it's, it's so tough. There's so many interesting challenges. But, you know, and it's all... It's, it's really heartwarming to see people with grace dealing dealing with these things and you know and really making the lemonade out of the lemons and you know one more optimistic way of looking at the future of this is you know maybe we'll end up better maybe well, maybe this will you know remind us collectively of 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 things that are important that we might have forgotten when our calendars were much fuller so Keith Lockhart before you go just tell me you're not using the bread machine you're doing the real deal yes um, whoops. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I did the bread. I, I used to do it the old fashioned way. My mom used to teach bread making at like the county extension. Oh, you're kidding. So, so I, 
I've had it with doing my own kneading. <laughs> yeah. I don't need it. I don't need it. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, you don't like to pound down that big blob in front of you. I always thought that was kind of fun. <laughs> oh, hey, well, Keith. I feel, like, I feel like hitting something. So uh. <laughs> We miss you. Lots of yeah. luck. Best to your family, and we hope to see, see you, you guys. really soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Please, and, stay, please stay safe, guys. And by the way, thanks for doing all you're doing. Yeah, well, and good luck. Sold. Good luck to you guys down there. Thank you, uh, Keith Lockhart, for your time. We'll Keith Lockhart, yes, we will. Keith Doc- Lockhart is the conductor of the Boston Pops. This year marks his 25th anniversary with the orchestra. Coming up, CNN's John King joins us for the latest headlines. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie Egan. Joining us online to go over the latest headlines is John King. John is CNN's chief national correspondent, anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch weekdays and Sunday mornings at 8. Hello there, John King. Hello, hello, hello. Busy Tuesday. How are you guys doing? Yeah. We're holding up. How about you? Holding up all right. All Good. right. Nope. I'm, I'm lucky, knock on wood, so... So we. Yeah, we're all knocking on wood. It's a lot. <laughs> anyway, uh, John King, um, I, I was in front of my television set last night. So was Jim Browdy uh, watching the Coronavirus Task Force press conference with President Trump. I know you were there as well. I think you were with both Blitzer. Um, wh- what was your reaction to last night? Isn't that what you tell Jim every day, Marjorie? You alone have the authority to control this program. <laughs> Um, I think it might be the other way around, actually, John. You know what I mean? I'm trying. I'm trying to. I'm, I'm trying to make light about it because, but it's not anything to make light about. I do think we all need a laugh in the middle of all this because everyone's going through hardships in their life. Yeah. Um, but what we saw yesterday in the White House briefing room, I covered the building for almost ten years. I never saw anything like that, and. Um, it was breathtaking, and I would argue it's actually kind of dangerous if that's what the president really believes about his authority. Um, we have a constitution. Uh, Republicans like to quick, uh, like to run around quoting the Federalist Papers and you know and those kind of things, and they're the constitutional conservative party. The president's powers are actually pretty limited. Um, they're big in wartime. This is a national emergency, but it's not a war. But even in a national emergency, the president's powers are limited, and for him to stand there repeatedly and getting angry at people for even questioning whether he has this authority and shutting them down and being rude to report him saying, I call the shots. And today he tweeted uh, that governor, it looks like governors are planning a mutiny. Yes. Um, he does not have this authority. He does not have this authority. Read the Constitution, read the Federalist Papers. Now, you know, he does have a significant influence. He should work with the states and even the Democratic governors say they want to work with him. Um, but he cannot say Massachusetts will reopen on Tuesday. And I'm sorry, Governor Baker, you must do this, this and this. He cannot say Major League Baseball, you must put people in Fenway Park and play a game. Uh, he can't do that. He does not have that authority. Do you think he does not know that, or do you think he just got carried away? Or I mean, I found it was it, it it's the, the whole thing pretty scary, and and not just the to, you know I have total authority thing, but why do you think he said that? I mean, I know he can't get in his head, but does he not know that? I, I can't. I, I can't. That that is I can't. Um, yeah. Number one, uh, he should know that. Um, I do think he has. He has always had an overambitious. 
believe in his personal sway and in his presidential powers. Presidents are powerful. And look, you know, if we were not in the COVID-19 conversation, we could have a conversation that the country's been having for about 35 years about the rise in presidential power, actually. There are a lot of people in Congress who say the president has too much power. The president has already exceeded his power, not just President Trump, but President Obama, President Bush, President Clinton, um, just, you know, in presidential authority, not declaring wars, but sending troops overseas and, you know, many other things, uh, using executive orders to do things that Congress has not done. Uh, This has been a running debate. However, um, you know he sh- he should know that his people certainly are telling him that um, he was. If you noticed yesterday, he came in. He's mad. He's mad because he's being held to account. Um, he's done some very good things in his response to the coronavirus. He's also done uh, some things that pr- his own words and actions show. And that propaganda video they ran yesterday had nothing from the month of February. And a very smart CBS reporter in the front row of the briefing yep. room says, "Sir, um, what about February?" Uh, when the president was saying, um, A, this was not going to be a pandemic, B, that it was not going to be a big deal, C, that it would not hurt the economy, uh, D, that everybody who wanted a test could get a test, um, E, that April it would get warm and it would go away. We had 15 cases. We would be down to zero. I could take the rest of your time this week and next week to go through the, some of the things the president said in February that just simply do not pass the smell test. Um, he does not want to be held accountable. We've talked about this before. So he was mad, number one. And then he took it out on the idea that, you know, he wants to get the economy reopened. I'm glad he wants to get the economy reopened. He should be planning to get the economy reopened, just like all the governors are. But it has to be done smartly. It has to be done collectively. Uh, but he has this thing that, you know, he's up for re-election. He doesn't want to be in a recession. So he thinks he's going to come into the briefing room someday and flip a switch and say go. Um, if he, His staff was texting people during during the briefing and immediately after saying, you know, Watch what we do, not what he says, which is absurd. Can you imagine that? You know, this, any organization, pay no attention to the boss's words, pay no attention to the boss's tweets. It's absurd. It's been happening since day one of the Trump administration. His own staff says he's just mad. He's just worked up. We're going to try to coordinate with the governors. But what the president says any day should matter in the middle of a pandemic when the country and the world is watching, uh, that was pretty stunning what we saw yesterday. Yeah, and by the way, you use the word mad, and I I know you don't get into this kind of thing, but I I have to say as an observer, what troubled me was less his anger and more, and I'm I'm not a psychiatrist either, nor even if I were have I examined him, this was an out-of-control man. The behavior, which is not atypical, but it was all smushed into 90 minutes of two hours yesterday, the way he treated that CBS reporter when she relentlessly kept mentioning the February gap in the tape when he couldn't answer it because there was no answer except that you're right. He did what he always does, but with with a vitriol, started attacking her and, and her ratings. And John's colleague, Caitlin Collins, yeah. who's a great well, reporter. Notice, notice the common thread here. Yes. Women. Too young. There are a lot of times there are people, questions asked in those briefings, and I'm going to throw things at my TV because a lot of the people, they know they're on television, so they just keep asking questions. Yeah, Mr. President, do you like your red ties or your blue ties? Uh, <laughs> because they know they're on television. Uh, and so there are times as someone who spent a lot of time in that room, I just want to throw my shoes at the TV screen and say, somebody please say thank you, Mr. President, and let him go. Stop asking stupid questions. But these are two damn good young tenacious reporters yes. who happen to be women who are asking fair, tough questions, but fair questions. We should want that in our democracy, whether our president is a Democrat, a Republican, an independent, a man, a woman, at times of crisis and at times of boom. We want reporters asking tough but fair questions that hold our politicians accountable. And that's what they were both doing. But because they're strong women and they were asking tough questions and they were trying to hold him accountable, he said, please, and stop to Caitlin Collins. Yep. 
heard that. And he said, "You're disgraceful and fake." Uh, to Paula Reed, he, yeah. he has a particular. He has this issue of accountability anyway. But watch when he's talking about Nancy Pelosi or in a room with Nancy Pelosi. Uh, when he's around strong, powerful, tough, tenacious women, he has a problem. We're talking to John King. So moving from the White House to Capitol Hill, I woke up this morning to read that uh, Steve Mnuchin, Secretary of the Treasury, and uh, uh, Chuck Schumer apparently, or at least as of this morning, had reached a a deal. Is that is that accurate, or am I misreading where we are on the next round, I guess round four of whatever it is that Congress does? Uh, they are talking, and I have not seen proof of any final deal, Jim. You may know something. I don't no, know. I don't. I've been on television for two hours, but I don't see it in my notes either yet. Um, so they have a disagreement right now. Everybody agrees you need more money somewhere in the ballpark of $250 billion for this small business program because the applications so far are running pretty strong, uh, and they're going to, you know, they know they're going to run out of money pretty soon. They have enough money for the next couple of weeks probably, but they know they're going to run out of money pretty soon in this Keep Small Businesses Afloat program. Um, and it has bipartisan support. Everybody thinks most most everybody thinks it's a good idea. Uh, the Democrats, the president just wants the two hundred fifty billion dollars, and that's what the Republicans in Congress are saying. And then they they want to do that in a quick one off, and then come back and discuss other issues, meaning more money for health care supplies, um, direct aid to the states who you know of course have seen all their budgets dry up because of this. Uh, and the Democrats are saying no, we want to do more uh, for health care workers and more of the direct aid to states now. Uh, that they're trying to figure out, you know, and, and the Democrats are getting some help from governors, including Republican governors, who are saying, we really need this money. We would like, I think it's $500 billion that Larry Hogan's the governor of Maryland, but the chairman of the National Governors Association has asked for like $500 billion spread between the states. Uh, I, I don't have in front of me anything that tells me that has been resolved. Uh, so the question is, do the, does the administration give in to the Democrats and at least put the aid to the states in there or one of their asks in there? Or do the Democrats agree, if they get a commitment from the administration, that we'll come back pretty quickly, you know, to, to those issues? Uh, that, that's that been the hang-up right now. And, you know, because the Democrats control the House, they believe they have the leverage to at least get something in this bill. Um, I, do th- I do think as the clock ticks, uh, if you get into next week and, the, and you do get closer to the money drying up, there's going to have to be a meeting of the minds here. Wh- who will get their way in the next this round and then move on to the next round? I can't answer that. We're talking to John King from CNN, of course. So what about this um, reopening team um, that we've heard about? What's happening with that? I know the governors are talking about getting together. Some governors, uh, including our own Charlie Baker, talking about uh, exploring reopening with other governors. But, but the Trump administration is talking about this, too. What does it mean? The president's going to announce more members of this team today, call it a task force and advisory board. We do know, do know his new chief of staff, Mark Meadows, the former congressman from uh, North Carolina, is going to be a big part of it. Uh, and we do know the president wants to bring in business voices from around the country, and he says he will bring some governors into this. He has said that in a briefing room. We'll see when they put out the list today who they have and uh, and, wh- and and if they do have some governors, whether they're all you know Trump red state governors or whether it's a mix of governors. And they don't have to be all you know, you, you want some Republicans and some Democrats if you want to do it right. Um, you know, Charlie Baker's not actually a Trump Republican, but somebody like that or somebody like Larry Hogan would be a good voice, someone who has some different views. Uh, I, I think it's important. And, you know, what the president said yesterday about his absolute authority, I call the shots, is frankly ridiculous. and It's just not supported by the Constitution. However, it is important that the president have a team of people and one would hope good outside advice on how and when and, you know, to do, to, to do this. Um, and you guys know the issues this is from talking to all the great people in the medical community up there in Massachusetts. Uh, we're nowhere near where we need to be in terms of diagnostic testing or this antibody testing. We're nowhere near 
need to be in contact tracing for somebody gets it and you try to track that. So if you're going to reopen, um, you will have some cases when you reopen where you'll see, you know, at least a modest spike in infections. It's just going to happen. Whether you reopen in May or July, for that matter, that's going to happen. Every public health professional will tell you that. Uh, you want to get it as low as you can before you reopen. And then when you reopen, you want to have a, the ability to test quickly. Um, I don't know anybody who says that we are at scale ready to do that anywhere in the country anywhere in the country, let alone a big metropolitan area like a Boston or a New York. Um, so you want to have these conversations. What troubles me is, you know, at what point are we going to have coordination? You see, you, you're, Charlie Baker's now part of this, you know, seven states in the Northeast. I think that's great. You have I-95, you have Acela, you have, you know, shipping and shipping routes and business routes. Of course, they should talk together. The West Coast governors are talking together. Uh, but, it, you know, the president, his staff says they plan on consulting with the governors and working this out. When you hear the president's tone and he starts tweeting, this is a mutiny, um, it just, to me, it's a wasted day. And if, if we, don't, we don't have an hour to waste here. They should be having these conversations, and they, be, they damn well better have medical professionals involved. But the first thing they have to do is prove they can get the testing up to scale. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise if, if anybody, whether it's the Republican president of the United States or any Democratic governor or any CEO somewhere who is in a state, let's say you're a CEO in a state that has not put a mandatory restriction on you, and you start ramping up, you are at risk of hurting your brand and hurting your people if you don't have the proper resources. And can you get those ramped up by May 1st? I don't know anybody who says the answer is yes when it comes to all this different testing because there's so many different proposed tests out there or, you know, these X number of private companies have this test and these companies have that test. Uh, it's a confusing environment right now. And so the governors, a lot of the governors say it's just like the personal protective equipment. They're competing against each other to buy it. Why don't we have a federal, you know, a testing platform and testing ramp up and use of the Defense Production Act. I'm confused by it right now. And I don't think, you know, I don't pretend to be you know, smart enough to understand all the medical stuff here, but I get politics and there's just a lot of people planting their flags right now and pointing fingers. And that to me is not helpful to get to a consensus about reopening because people are scared. People listening here, should I go back to work? How far away to my colleague? Do we all have to wear masks? Do I take my temperature every day? Can I go to the, you know, cafe, the break area in my workspace? Um, what if I go to the sandwich shop on the corner? Um, is the bar going to be open? Can I stop and get a drink on the way home on a Friday night? Uh, people have These are all legitimate questions, and I could ask a million more, and we're not getting consistent answers, which I just think is worrisome. You know, I want to get back, though, to – well, I want to focus on what you just said a minute ago, is people hear John King say uh, we need to be sure that we have all the testing we need before we even think of, quote, reopening, which is the term, I guess, that the president uses, and I guess a lot of governors use. But then they turn on uh, the White House Coronavirus Task Force in whenever it is, three hours, four hours, and they hear the most powerful person with the biggest megaphone in America, John, say uh, we're testing better and faster and more perfectly and more comprehensively than any place on Earth. And they say to themselves, well, I think I heard John King say today we have to have testing up to a certain level uh, before we even think of reopening. And the president just told us we have the best testing in the world and everybody wants a test guess that gets a test. And that feeds the notion that we're ready for something that virtually – not every, but virtually every governor in America says we're not ready for, Right. Yeah, and I would urge your listeners, you know, don't trust John King. Uh, you know, trust trust who you trust at your local level. Is it your mayor? Is it your, you know, your local health commissioner? Is it your own doctor? 
ask them if they have everything they need. Don't trust me, uh, but these are the people I have on my show. I'm doing two hours a day now and, and Sunday, and I have yet to have on a public health professional or a mayor or a state health director or a, you know, a member of the United States Senate or Congress or governors when you have them. I have yet to have one say, I have everything I need when it comes to testing, whether it's diagnostic testing or this antibody testing to find out you know, if you've already had it. The theory being if you've already had coronavirus, you're safer to go back to work because you have a very minimal risk of being infected again. Um, you have a whole bunch of people, and this is the wonder of America. You have all this private enterprise as well as all the state labs and all the federal labs uh, trying to come up with the best test and the quicker test. And you hear about a blood antibody test yesterday. You hear about a saliva test today. Uh, this is all great. The question is, Who's in charge of saying this is effective, this one is 95% accurate, therefore we are going to ramp it up in a giant way so that either on the 1st of May or the middle of May or the 1st of June, whenever the, the people who get to make these decisions make the decisions, and it might be different in one state and another. It might be different in the Berkshires than it is in Boston. Um, you know, but when you do this, that that area has what it needs to do this. I do not know anybody who has raised I, – I can't find anybody in the country – who has raised their hand and said, I'm ready. We're talking to uh, John King. So, John, yesterday Bernie Sanders, earlier, far earlier than uh, an endorsement he made of the ultimate nominee four years ago, endorsed Joe Biden. Today, I guess right before noon, uh, the former president of the United States, Barack Obama, endorsed uh, Joe Biden. It's hard for either of those to get virtually any play in light of what's going on that's a bigger and more immediate concern. Uh, so why did they do what they did now? You have to do it, right? I mean, I, I, I agree with you completely that we don't quite understand the metrics here. How do we judge this here? We didn't see either Joe Biden going to Burlington, Vermont, or Bernie Sanders coming to Wilmington, Delaware, or the two of them flying off to Detroit, Michigan, or you know, someplace to do a Bernie-Biden unity rally. Uh, and then you would see, you know, a day or two after that, the Obama unity rally, where they would go somewhere and do a big public event, uh, maybe all together. And maybe, or maybe you would do a Bernie Biden event and an Obama Biden event. Then, you you know, a week or two later, you do all the Democrats and all the people who ran in 2020 come and show up. And Obama's there as well. And you just do this around the country and you try to have energy and momentum. That's a normal campaign playbook. Throw it out the window. We don't have that. And we don't know for how long we don't have it. So I think in the Biden campaign, they decided, and when Sanders decided, you know, remember a week ago, he was suspending his campaign, but he still wanted to get right, delegates. Right. Now he's endorsing Joe Biden. He made a change. And I think when you get that, uh, then, you know, you're going to have all, everybody whispering, where's Obama? Where's Obama? So Obama comes off the sidelines. I, I, I want to watch this play out. I will say this. Uh, it's a very weird world we're living in. It is unpredictable and unprecedented. But in the digital space we are living in now, Senator Sanders and President Obama have a higher profile and more experience than Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Bernie Sanders has a network of people. They are connected digitally. He does raise a lot of money on the Internet. He has proven his political organizing and his fundraising in that, in that space way better than Biden has. Uh, Obama, of course, back in 2008, taught us a lot about raising money and organizing. You know, Howard Dean was the first one to raise a lot of money on the Internet years ago. Uh, then Obama took that to the next level in 2008 by organizing, setting up meetings, setting up groups. You could be a neighborhood captain without ever going to an event you know, on online. Uh, so you, uh, now he's in the entertainment space. So you do have in Sanders and Obama, Obama more than Sanders, but two, two of the uh, people with higher profile digital platforms, uh, which I think can only help Biden. Does it help him enough? How are we going to go through this from now and through November or at least now through, let's say now, let's you know, break it in half and say now through the summer? 
before you do, when you have to make a final decision, are we really going to have that convention, or is it going to have to be a virtual convention? Um, so for for the you know for April, May, and June, if you just did it that way, it's really hard to see a traditional campaign. So you do what you can. Um, and getting Obama on board, he's the most popular Democrat in the country. He can help Biden with fundraising, where he's getting his butt kicked right now by the Trump campaign. Um, so you, you do the best you can. And, and Jim, I think we're all learning, and not just us as reporters or people who watch and cover these things. The campaigns are, too. They're going to try some things. Not all of them are going to work, and they're trying to figure this out, too. John, huh, thank you. As we both sigh, yeah. <laughs> John speaks. <laughs> we know. both take a deep breath. And I know. Move. Hey, John. Sorry uh, to make you sigh. No, no it wasn't you. It's, it's great just, to talk to you so as always. It's so much goes on so fast. The whole thing is just crazy. Anyway, John, thank, thank you. Thank you, John. Take care, guys. Stay you safe. too. You too. John King joins every week. He's seen as chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch weekdays and Sunday mornings at 8. Uh, weekdays at noon and Sunday mornings at 8. Uh, John King, thanks again. Up next, we're taking your calls on anything you want to talk about coronavirus-wise. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie again. As uh, Marjorie just said, we're doing our daily coronavirus roundup, taking your calls and everything from how your food supply is doing, how homeschooling is working out, and who do you think is doing a better job managing all the fallout, your own governor or Donald Trump? As John King said, uh, mentioned yesterday, uh, the president said under the Constitution he had total authority to decide when to reopen the country. Uh, Trump tweeted a couple of hours ago, as John said, tell the Democratic governors that Mutiny on the Bounty was one of my all-time favorite movies. A good old-fashioned mutiny every now and then is an exciting and invigorating thing to watch, especially when the mutineers need so much from the captain, meaning him, too easy. And that in part was the response to what Andrew Cuomo had to say during his daily briefing. He was responding to this total authority to open the economy contention made by the uh, president yesterday. Here's Cuomo. Uh, The balance between the state and the federal, that magnificent balance that is articulated in the Constitution, is the essence of our democracy. We don't have a king in this country. Uh, We didn't want a king. So we have a Constitution and uh, we elect the president. The states... The colonies formed the federal government. The federal government did not form the states. It's the colonies that ceded certain responsibility to a federal government. All other power remains with the states. It's basic. Thank you, Professor Cuomo. I think a pretty good explanation. You can weigh in on that, too, the debate between the governors and the president as to who has the authority to reopen when the time comes. Our number is 877-301-8970. You know, I just wanted to report an interesting story that I saw on CNN when I was preparing for John King to come on about uh, physicians now turning the sickest coronavirus patients on their stomachs. Uh, They have a quote from the uh, director of the medical ICU unit at Mass General Hospital, and she said, uh, her name is uh, Catherine Hibbert, and apparently this was an idea that came from France, some doctors around here uh, looking into it. So it was just sort of an interesting thing that people get more oxygen in their lungs lying on their stomach than they do on their back. And this 
MGH physician is saying, once you see it work, you see it work almost immediately. So that's sort of a neat little tidbit that I hadn't heard about before, putting patients on their stomach to open up parts of the lung that they're not getting to. Otherwise, it's kind of encouraging encouraging news. 877-301-8970. So if you want to tell us what part of your body you sleep on, you can tell us... <laughs> That too, your side, well, you know, on funny. your back. You know, it's interesting because a lot of people who his partners snore mm-hmm. um, tell their partners to turn, turn over, over their stomach yeah. on their stomach. Yeah, have you noticed that they snore less on no, their stomach? I haven't. But well, it's something to look into, Jim. No, who would question your science? I would say. Well, I, nobody. I'm re- don't believe me. I'm I'm reading this from from CNN. Um, anyway, eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy is our number. We're taking all information about coronavirus. Whether you too, like the people across the street, are running over this huge parking lot, looking for open spaces for your children to run around in because they're driving you absolutely nuts. These people have been over here for about an hour, Jim, on the scooters and bicycles, riding back and forth. The kids, the parents, are like passed out on the sidewalk. Oh, it's actually <laughs> great to watch, and the kids. Every, no, they are on the sidewalk, and the kids on, every once in a while run over and check in with them. I think it's actually yeah. a pretty beautiful little exercise. I'm these, serious. These little kids are like, you know, they're like three years old. They're running from one end of the parking lot. It's like the size of a football field. One end of the parking lot, well, not quite the size of a football field, but it's close. Do you see what the father just did, which is actually quite beautiful what for the do? occasion? He just gave his three-year-old 20 bucks and said, go get me two packs of cigarettes. <laughs> I don't heard that through. Alan in a car, you're first on Boston Public Radio. Thank you much for calling. Hi. How are you guys doing today? We're good. 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 Um, I'm just I, like I, I saw the highlights, if you will. I was doing air quotes there. Mm-hmm. Of the uh, press conference yeah. last night. Yep. And then, um, and then the mutiny tweet today. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like, what? Where's the tipping point? Like, when do we reach the point where everybody's like, "Yep, it, that's enough. We're done." Well, that's you know, a great Alan, question, I Alan. I suggest question. Marjorie and I had a disagreement yesterday. Most callers were on Marjorie's side. I thought that had he fired Fauci, which he said that he retweeted the hashtag fire Fauci, but then said yesterday it meant nothing that he retweeted. It's just one person's opinion. That would do it. And I have to say that uh, he's had some troubling public moments. I said earlier in the show, I thought yesterday's press thing was the most troubling I have seen by far. I thought it was a person who was out of control, who was infected by megalomania, not coronavirus. But, uh, uh, you know, if history is any guide, Alan, this will be like everything else where there is a harsh partisan divide. If you love them, you love them regardless. And if you don't, you don't. Do you feel differently? I'm just, well, I've been, I've been waiting for the tipping point for literally for years now. Yeah, me too. um, like I thought when he was making fun of the, the disabled reporter. I thought we that. talked about that yeah. yesterday. And Kieser Khan and John McCain go down the list. And but when he one, talked about how he could 20... grab women wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted, most people, including his supporters, thought was the, that was the end, too, when he was running. But nothing has been. So I, the answer to your question is... Who knows? Alan, thank you for the call. Well, I think the interesting thing is, and it's hard to have these conversations because sometimes they're members of your family or close friends or something, that when people support Trump now, why? Why? What's going on with with, with them? And I, I, He was just responding yesterday, to, like that caller said in the 11 o'clock hour, to reporters who have lied about him and treated him terribly unfairly. What Donald Trump was doing, which I admire, they would say, is not letting reporters get away with, quote, fake news. That's what he did yesterday for 90 minutes, and I commend him. I mean, what other explanation could there be that would allow you to say that was okay the way he behaved? I, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't understand it 
anymore. Can you also, I, I know I've said this before, but the one thing that really stuck with me, other than how, beyond the ridiculous video and how disrespectful he was, as John King said specifically to women reporters, if it turns out you want to have a discussion, even an argument with a reporter on the merits of something, mm -hmm. I'm totally fine with that. I like reporters who challenge and I like politicians who have the courage to fight back. But when he couldn't win the argument because he was wrong, to to rely on what he always relies on, your disgrace, your fake, your ratings, or everything is ratings, is not, are, are horrible, is so childish in coming out of the mouth of the man who is responsible you know, for preserving this, the, the good health of 325 million people. You know what else is interesting? We wrote a story a few weeks ago. I don't even remember if we what talked it? about it on the radio, about how easily authoritarians can take over oh. and, and how easily they can intimidate the people beneath them to do their bidding. And we've seen this with great swaths of the GOP um, where people are afraid of – some Republican politicians are afraid of his going after them, people that, that, that know better. And it was talking about we think we'd all stand up. We think we'd uh, you know, go march. Uh, Marching up to whomever and and you know stand up for truth, justice, in the American way, mm -hmm. but most of us don't. And and it it was written, I think, by Marsha Gessen, who's Russian from New Yorker, yeah. And she was talking about how Marsha Gessen, excuse me, Marsha Gessen from the New Yorker, who's Russian and has written brilliantly about Russia and authoritarianism there. And she was, I think, comparing it to. Uh, the performance we've seen here. So maybe that's part of it. When you see people knuckle under, you see a station like Fox News, which gets money. I mean, they make tons of money off their Trump uh, promoting of Trump. So they don't want to, like, step away from that because that's going to hurt uh, their... Forget Fox News, Marjorie. How about the five conservatives on the Supreme Court of the United States who said it was more important to let the election go ahead That's an excellent point. and hundreds of thousands of people That's in Wisconsin an point. endanger their public health. And I don't have I don't have an explanation for them because those we think would be the the few people who could stand up because there's What can nothing. you do to them? Exactly. 877-301-89. Well, actually, you know who one of my guests is going to be tonight, who, who? I've wanted to meet for a long Linda Greenhouse, who was the, oh, who the Pulitzer Supreme Prize Court. winning. Well, now she's a columnist, but she covered the Supreme Court for the uh, New York Times forever. She's now a columnist who writes about it. She wrote one of the most powerful pieces about how disgraceful and dangerous for democracy that Wisconsin decision by the Supreme Court on the eve of the Wisconsin primary last week was, and she's joining me tonight on uh, Great Well, Boston. you raised the question earlier. We never got to it with John King about what the Supreme Court impact on the election. What were you talking about? Well, what the, I think it was Krugman. Paul Krugman wrote it the day before. They have a horrible records on voting rights. Uh, John Roberts is often seen as the as the moderate, or at least the swing vote. He's the one who I believe wrote the decision in the case that essentially gutted the Voting Rights Act. Uh, he was amongst the five-member majority who voted that it's fine to go ahead with an election in the middle of a pandemic, an in-person election in Wisconsin. And the fear was if this continues for a while and there are other challenges to voting made by people who want to suppress votes as the court and ally of those vote suppressors come November. And I, I don't think that's a preposterous concern Although what happened anymore. in Wisconsin? Well, I mean, not well. You don't mean in the primary where no. Biden crushed in the. No, I mean the one of the reasons the, the Republicans wanted to try to manipulate this in the legislature there against the wills of, will of the Democratic governor was they actually elect the judge, judges or justices. I don't know what they call them there, the Supreme Court, and there was a liberal challenging a conservative incumbent who was actually endorsed the conservative incumbent by the president of the United States. 
and the liberal challenger crushed uh, the incumbent and will get a seat she was on a woman the Supreme too. Court. She was a woman. Seth in Salem, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Hi. Hi. Good afternoon, Jim and Marjorie. Um, so the coronavirus has made me realize that being in quarantine, that um, having access to family and friends and music and even comic relief is pretty important these days. <laughs> very we true. We agree with that. And, and, and having said that, I have a very quick little joke for you and your listeners. We're ready. Guy goes to, yeah, guy goes to see his doctor, and the doctor says, sir, what's the issue? And the patient replies, I have this song. It keeps repeating in my head. It's the green, green grass of home. And the doctor replies, it's nothing to worry about. It's just Tom Jones syndrome. The patient replies, Tom Jones syndrome. Is that rare? And the doctor replies, it's not unusual. So, but I'm bummed. You have to be of a certain age, though, Seth, unfortunately. Tom June, Jones, who was a hip, swinging, hip. crooning. No, hip, uh, hips, as in his hips. Oh, okay. His hips were always moving. I didn't mean he was hip. He was, and I guess he was a sexual object for some older women, Wouldn't particularly he be in his the time. Lounge lizard epitomized. His, uh, his most famous song, uh, Seth, it's horrible, and I have to explain the joke for five minutes, was It's Not Unusual. Marjorie and I laughed, but I, I was trying to help out everybody else. Seth, thank you very much for the phone call. Elaine from Wayland, we literally have a minute, and it's yours. Hi. Um, hi, Jim and Marjorie. A uh, long time listener, first time caller. Thank, thank you so you. much. I, I, I will try to be quick. So yep. my um, my husband, he lost his sense of smell, lost his sense of taste uh, last Taco Tuesday. Oh, and Taco so um, I, you know, left the bedroom. I've been sleeping on the sofa. We have four kids in our home. Um, he's had like a low-grade fever off and on, eight. He finally talked to his doctor yesterday, and they said, oh, well, you don't have severe enough symptoms for us to get a test for you because we're using the CDC guidelines, and they say you have to have an actual fever or trouble breathing or whatever it is that those guidelines are. And I go, okay, well, I'm a family of of six, and we could all have it, and we don't know, and we're not going to find out, and yet Trump is saying we're just going to reopen the country, and I have all of these asymptomatic carriers in my house. They're going to kill everybody. Well, Elaine, can I make a suggestion? This is your first call ever. Why don't you make your second call ever tomorrow when the Attorney General of Massachusetts is with us and uh, uh, voice your your concern to her and see if she has a solution? Because I'll tell you, I don't know what the current standards are either. But as you described them, I think a test would have been appropriate. But again, I'm not a decision maker. Thanks for your first call. We wish you uh, good health in the family and... Do call again tomorrow. If yeah, you good choose. luck to we your husband. It. Elaine, thank you very much. And thank you all for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow, we're going to have the Attorney General, Maura Healy, here. She'll be taking uh, our questions and your calls about the coronavirus and uh, programs that she's got going on at the Attorney General's office involving the economy, et cetera, et cetera. I want to thank our crew Chelsea Murs, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, and Aidan Conley. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker. What's on TV? We're doing the film tomorrow, too. Chelsea, are we doing How to Fix a Drug Scandal? If you haven't seen it yet, the four-part thing on Netflix. It is great. One of the major players, Matt Siegel from the Civil Liberties Union, is going to join us about this. I'll tell you, it opened my eyes. It was bad before I saw the documentary. Multiply it by 100. We've been saying the praises of government. This was an example of government really screwing up in a very nefarious way. That is true. Uh, Mayor Walsh will join me tonight on Greater Boston. As I said, Linda Greenhouse, Pulitzer Prize winning Supreme Court reporter for the New York Times, now a columnist. 
will join me on the Wisconsin decision and this total authority thing. Stephanie Lydon will look at the the problems for soup kitchens and food pantries in a time of social distancing and something we've been doing every night, which has gotten a lot of attention and people like it. We end the show every night with acts of kindness that people are doing for their neighbors and the response has been epic. So more of that tonight. That's 7 o'clock on Greater Boston. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Browdy. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Stay healthy and please tune in again tomorrow and send us your questions or call them in for the Attorney General. Have a great afternoon.